Hey audience, this is Max. I'm going to give you a quick heads up. This isn't obviously our Black Widow episode. Life conspired to make it hard for me to turn that large amount of content into a coherent episode in a timely fashion. So in the meantime, I hope you'll listen to this Captain America the First Avenger podcast where we have deep, thoughtful, profound discussions about that film. And I'll try and get you the Black Widow episode out as soon as I can. And thanks for your patience, listeners. And on to the episode. Wow. WandaVision? Yeah. We share uh, a break. Oh, no. Oh, I like this, Jason. I like I like what you've done here. Hello, and welcome to Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Jason. And I'm Max. And on this episode, we're going to be covering and discussing and reviewing Captain America, The First Avenger, made in 2011 and directed by Joe Johnston, starring Chris Evans as Steve Rogers, Haley Atwell as Peggy Carter, Sebastian Stan as Bucky Barnes. And I want to notice that Sebastian Stan is alliterative in the same way as his character is in the movie. Sebastian Stan, <laughs> Bucky Barnes. It's fascinating, audience, and I hope you grasp that. Colonel Chester Phillips, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Johan Smith, or the Red Skull, played by Hugo Weaving. Howard Stark is Dominic Cooper. Dr. Arnim Zola by Toby Jones. And Dr. Abraham Erskine by Stanley Tucci. Story and writing in the comics was created by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon in 1941, while they were at Timely Comics, which would become Atlas Comics, which would become Marvel Comics. Screenplay by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McPhee. Music by Alan Silvestri. Costume design. And I'm putting this in here for a reason because I want to talk about it again by Anna B. Shepard. That's the cast and the uh, cast and the director. Anything you want to add, Jason, to anything I've said? Things you think I missed that need discussing? I think that you nailed it. Well, uh, um, I, I'll probably I cut would... that in several times. I think that you nailed it. Well, I I, I would say, uh, and I did notice this because I'm always interested in the uh, in kind of development of the of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the people that work on it. One of the things that I noticed uh, this time, and I've noticed this for a while, but but even more so, um, a lot of the production team that will go forward in the Marvel Cinematic Universe join the series with this movie. Okay, this is this is the first screenplay written by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. They have written three or four since then, maybe maybe even five. They've written most of the Avengers movies after this, and and the Captain. In America films after this. Also, the editors in the film, uh, Jeffrey Ford and uh, Robert, I believe Jeffrey Ford uh, and Robert Dava, you can find them as being editors in many of the films after this. It's almost like that the Marvel team decided that they were trying to settle on not necessarily a regular director, but a regular team of people who know how to make this kind of movie. Alan Silvestri, as you said, did the score. He's He uh, would do the Avengers films and he's he's been kind of the go-to main composer for the series since then. He hasn't done every film, no. but uh, but I think that he's kind of been, whenever there's a marquee movie, he's usually brought in. Gotcha. A few notes. I guess I want to I want to talk about uh, Captain America specifically for a second. I mean, this character was created by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon in 1941. Very clearly a kind of World War II rally the troops kind of propaganda character, right? It was hugely popular. The most popular character for Timely Comics 
in the history of time in the comics after the debut issue it sold like a million issues per issue until it's it, it, for several years until after the war when the superhero uh, the superhero concept sort of loses popularity after 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 World War II but strangely there was a huge backlash after the first issue not a huge backlash I want to I want to let me let me walk that back a little bit but there was a backlash Timely Comics got hate mail Timely Comics got angry groups outside of Timely Comics in in opposition they didn't agree with the values that were that were portrayed in Captain America this was such a big deal that the mayor of New York actually wrote a public letter expressing support for Timely Comics and Jack Kirby and Joe Simon uh, specifically I think you know you guys are doing a good uh, the good the good thing here and I couldn't find out who was writing these angry letters but it is important to note that there was a sizable unfortunately sizable Nazi party in America really uh yeah uh there were there were Nazi marches and I wonder if that wasn't the source of that that uh those those angry letters but it was a hugely popular comic so it was a, obviously a small small opposition but it was fierce small but loud small but loud million issues moving that much copy in any era is amazing yeah but it was a big popular comic uh it gets canceled in in 1951 I just started to lose like I said superheroes lost their popularity and uh Atlas Comics tried for a revival and it didn't make it it didn't it only there was only two issues and it was not popular so they discontinued it so Captain America was shelved for like 11 years until issue four of the Avengers of the Avengers 64 yeah. say it again no no uh, uh that was the the resurrection of Captain America because yes. the the original Avengers were Iron Man the Hulk Ant-Man yep the Wasp and Thor. That's right. And Until uh, they introduced Cap because Hulk, they needed, a, they needed a new member because Hulk didn't stick around long. He hated right. all of them. And it was a really popular addition to the team. And he gets his own uh, comic book at, at, at Marvel. Uh, not his own comic book. He starts appearing in Tales of Suspense, which was a kind of an anthology comic book, but same year, 64. And in Tales of Suspense, he shared half the issue with Iron Man, which yeah. I think is kind of interesting when you kind of look at the arc of the Captain America film and the Avengers films, which we'll probably get into at some point, but there's a really important dynamic that is preserved from the comic, from the source material through the films that links Iron Man and Cap, yeah. you know? But anyway, at issue 100 of Tales of Suspense, it becomes the comic book we now know as Captain America. So I have a question for you. Shoot! Uh, that I have never been able to get to the bottom of. One of the things longtime readers of Marvel Comics, people who read, you know, who know the origins of all the characters know that that, uh, in the comic, Captain America was uh, fighting the Red Skull with Bucky, yep. and uh, and there was a rocket that was launched, and uh, Bucky was apparently killed in this incident, and Cap was trying to dismantle this rocket, and he ends up, the rocket crashes, and he goes into the ice, and that's where the Avengers find him years later. Yep. That was a kind of a retroactive kind of story that Marvel came up, correct? That was not... I, th I think that it is, because it doesn't happen in the time Timely Comics run or the Atlas Comics run. This was this happens in I think this the third or fourth issue. I actually just read it. Maybe I can look it up. I have I've been actually reading the original Tales of Suspense in uh, lovely editions called Marvel Masterworks, and everybody should you can find them on Amazon or wherever you need to wherever you find fine comic books. But I think it was issue two or three of Tales of Suspense where they they tell the, the startling origin of Captain America, and they 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 review his origin uh, with the Super Soldier Serum, and they review the death of Bucky and and Captain America going into the ice. Uh, they might do that too in the in the uh, issue four 
core of Captain uh, of the Avengers. That is retro. That that's retro continuity is what they call it in comic books, right? Retconning. And, Retconning. Yes. And so because it doesn't happen in the in the timely comics run. That, that's what you're asking, right? It is. It, yes. you, I, what, I, what, I, what I what I mean to do is confirm what you're saying. It is ret- retconning. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to touch on that because like this is kind of a really popular character, and I'm happy to see that. You know, I think we're all happy to see that it was that Captain America's addition uh, to the Marvel Universe has continued since '64. I mean, the comic book has been in production since '64. Were you a, were you a collector of Cap in 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 our Jason and I met in the fourth grade, and we both this we uh we discovered we we discovered we both read comic books, and he was a collector. Uh, sadly, he collected the wrong books. He collected the Avengers, and uh, I. Th- <laughs> He's laughing. He's laughing pretty hard. He's got a silent laugh. But, uh, and Thor. And uh, did you collect Cap? Uh, you know, I never, on occasion, I would pick up a Cap uh, book. Yep. Um, and if, you know, if I bought a, back then, you could buy packages of comic books where you'd have like five. They'd be random yep. in, in a plastic bag. You'd rip it open. And sometimes there'd be one in there and I would read it. But there was never a time where I collected Captain America. I, uh, I had some issues. Yep. But my connection to Captain America mainly stems from the fact that uh, for a time I collected the Avengers yeah. and he was usually in that title at, at uh, most of the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, and he was usually the leader of the group. Yeah. And uh, so I, I knew a lot about his character. I knew a lot about um, the whole man out of time theme, uh, but, but I never collected it straight up. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, I never, I never collected it either. Um, so for readers who want to, for listeners, I'm sorry, who want to know what comics they should have collected in the 80s was the X-Men and Wolverine and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was the, that was the stuff. Jason was in the wrong aisle all the time. Uh, I'm just kidding. The, the, the fact is, folks, and I, I'm go, going a little afield here, uh, Jason and I both grew up kind of uh, working class. And so the great benefit of finding other comic book readers is that they were probably reading something different than you were yeah. reading. And so you could go to their house and read their whatever the fuck it was they were reading. And when they came over, when they came over to your house, they would read whatever you were reading. So we kind of filled out each other's content knowledge because uh, all the comic books, we liked all the comic books, but we couldn't right. afford all the comic books. So anything about the production you want to talk about here before we, as we dive in? Well, you know, I, I, I do think that, and actually I'll even add our, our own thoughts about this at the time, going back a long way, I think most Marvel fans thought that Captain America was a title that was going to be very difficult to reproduce in in film. Wow. Um, yes. I, I didn't even I didn't even remember that worry that we had, but you're absolutely right. Oh, and, and it was a major worry. And of course, this is not the first Captain America film. There wasn't uh there were attempts to make Captain America TV movies in the 70s. Uh there was an attempt to make a Captain America movie in 1990. That's all we'll say about any of those attempts. <laughs> there was Marvel did have an idea that they they wanted to make a Captain America movie. And in the early 2000s, after the success of Spider-Man, the Tobey Maguire films, Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man were movies that were kind of in the pipeline that they were kind of looking to develop. And uh, so Captain America was actually one of those projects that they were really trying to kind of move along. Uh, Avi Arad, who uh, was a, an early leader at uh, Marvel Studios, was the produ- the original producer of record. And there was an origi- a, a, originally an idea to do a Captain America film that would indeed start in World War II and would start with Cap and the war and then he would go into into freezing and then he would come out you know 70 years later and have a modern 
adventure. A lot like the structure of Richard Donner's Superman movie in that you would have, you know, the origin and then kind of a mini adventure at the end. That never really got off the ground. It, it kind of went into development hell. It kind of had, uh, I, I shouldn't say hell. I mean, it wasn't, you know, there wasn't necessarily a lot of drama with it, but it kind of got stuck. Uh, there was a delay. And then finally, when they were ready to launch the MCU, um, they had asked John Favreau to direct the film. Uh, and Favreau decided that he wanted to make Iron Man, yeah. which is the only reason why he didn't direct Cap, because he is the person that they kind of originally kind of offered it to. Yeah. So then Iron Man kind of became the flagship of the of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so Captain America, the first Avenger, kind of went into production about the same time as Thor. Yeah. And uh, that was when the two uh, were being made. They hired Joe Johnston to direct. Joe Johnston was a, 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 a very experienced participant in filmmaking. He worked on the original Star Wars with George Lucas as a, I mean, as a special effects guy or a set guy. So um, an older guy, you know, very experienced. Um, He had done films that were kind of similar in texture. He directed The Rocketeer in the the early 90s. I I, I remember that now, go ahead. Yeah, and so so he was kind of selected for that reason uh, to direct this film. As we go along, um, you know, we probably will talk a lot about, about his, you know, the choices that he made in making this movie. They brought in Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely to do a final script for the film. And that writing team would end up becoming a very important part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's a lot of kind of foundational uh, things that the Marvel uh, that Marvel Studios did with this particular movie. This is also the first MCU movie to be filmed with digital cameras. Okay. Well, so yeah. You, you, you brought up some of the recurring cast and I think that that's very like one of the things that I, I think that if you think the Marvel movies have been successful and are good and great as I mean Jason and I are, are pretty sol- uh, pretty strong fans of these films the MCU filmmaking very much mirrors the the kind of Marvel comics method of producing stories you see a lot of people all over each other's books but you see similar names pop up you know which kind of gives a very uh, there's a continuity of, of feel in storytelling across Marvel titles there's very tight editorial control so like all the editors of the different books are talking to each other so that you don't tell a story that that upsets the balance of other things that are going on within the Marvel universe right in in the comics and that's what's going on here which gives the whole the whole thing uh, a solid feel uh, a, a continuous feel how did you feel when you first saw the film so it's interesting this is I believe this is I think this might be the first MCU movie I did not see in the theater okay um, I saw it on um, I, I think probably a DVD rental and the first time that I saw it I was relieved that they had done it well yeah uh, when I saw they were doing it my reaction was oh shit they're doing Captain America this could this, this could doom the whole enterprise this 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 might this this could go badly now now I want I want you to explain why it could go badly describe what Captain America looks like in the comic book uh, Captain America in the comic book uh, he has a costume with uh, uh, it's red, white, and blue, and he has the star, and he's got the red and white bars just below the star, you know, uh, around his navel area. Red gloves, uh, red boots. Pirate boots. Pirate boots, yeah. And then a a kind of cowl over his head with eye slits and white wings. White wings not where his ears are, yeah. Real wings. Real wings, okay, yeah, yeah. He carries a a shield that's also kind of uh, American flag emblem. It's emblematic of the American flag, red, white, 
and blue, star in the center. Yes. Um, Stan Lee, by the way, came up with... Stan, Captain America is one of the first comic books Stan Lee wrote, and he came up with the idea that Cap would throw the shield and use it as like a throwing weapon. Ah. Anyway, side note. But that's a hard concept to take from the comic book to the screen. This, this was, my, was my worry. Well, um, but there's... An- <sighs> There's another reason why that was going to be difficult. Yeah. Because uh, Captain America, in some ways, was kind of the the Marvel version of the clean cut Superman. Yep. Yep. You know, I I think everyone would agree that Christopher Reeve will be the last person to say I'm here to fight for truth, ju- truth, justice in the American way, and be able to get away with it. And I and I and I think that by 2011, when this film was made, and long before this film was made, there was this sense that to be able to do Captain America and not have it be feel hokey yeah. was just something that was very difficult to imagine well, for co- comic readers. After the 60s, it's hard to have, I mean, we saw it work with Superman, but it's hard to have somebody as patriotic as Captain America in a country that it looks back on its past and sees that it's a very complicated past. Well, is that is that fair to say? Not, it is fair to say, but it seemed that way. It seemed that way, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> It it seemed that way, and I would suggest, as we begin talking about this film, that this film disproved that hypothesis. In in part, it does, it does. And and the whole series makes Captain America a very compelling figure, which I thought was going to be hard. I thought it was going to be harder than it uh, turned out it it was, uh, owing to the scriptwriters. I thought it was going to be harder to bring to the screen. I thought Cap was going to be harder to bring to the screen than Thor. I I thought Thor was something that was going to be problematic too, but there's something about embracing source material that I want to I I think I want to say about the MCU embracing the source material is the right way to go. Yes. You know, uh, this film doesn't, the MCU is very good at taking elements of stories and bringing together a very true to the character Marvel true to the Marvel character feel to the film, even if they don't mirror the stories themselves, right? Sorry, I've lost my train of thought, everybody, but I think you're right. So you, you, when you first saw it, you thought, wow, I, everything's okay everything's okay I, I think i might have even seen the avengers before i saw this okay wow but, wow but, yeah but um but when i finally saw it, I was like okay they you know they did this right yeah and and that was good enough for me yeah now i i i liked the movie when it came out but i thought well it moved a little fast i i would have liked to have seen more howling commandos which we'll get into in a bit i would have liked some more when i first saw it i would have liked some more explanation that the time that he's in World War II was longer, you know? I would have liked to have had some idea that he was, you know, 41 to maybe 45, right? Right. So, but I, I I thought it was a good movie. I thought it was, I thought it didn't, it didn't duplicate the nightmare of 91 with the Captain America movie from that era. So I liked it. I liked it. Uh, I'll have more to say about my opinion, my, 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 uh, my final opinion. But you were just talking about Joe Johnston doing The Rocketeer, which was a, a film set in World War II era, the 40s. Yep. I want to bring up Alan Silvestri before we get lost in the minutia of this movie. I want to bring up Alan Silvestri and Anna B. Shepard, the costume designer. Silvestri has done one of his best scores in this film, I think. What do you think? I I am in total agreement. When I was I was listening to it today, Jason often gets ahead of me and and listens to the soundtracks <laughs> in 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 there by themselves. And I did that today, and because I was really focusing on it in the film. And this film, without Silvestri, without making it obvious, has created 
something that could be in any of the great World War II movies with this. Yes. I, I was thinking, this is where Eagles Dare. This is Guns of Navarone. This is, uh, you know, uh, The Bridge on the River Kwai. He's really looked at the, that era and crafted something that could have been crafted by somebody in the 1940s. I, I, that's what I thought when I was watching the film. Rousing. Yes. You, 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 you're more of a student of film score than I am. What did you think? I, I, I'm in complete agreement. And by the way, and I'm sure that we'll continue this theme as we go, it took me a while to kind of absorb what you just said. Yeah. Uh, it took me three, four, five watches before I was finally, before I finally realized what the music of this film was actually doing uh, for me. Yeah. And, and and not just the score, but even the, you know, the Captain America song yeah. that we'll get to later. The music of this film really contributes to the digestion of everything that goes on in this movie. Absolutely. And it, it's glorious. And, and But it's also important in, in, in kind of giving one a sense of time and place. Yes. It, it's it's a it, to me it's a movie that fits right in with the art deco design of everything in this film. Yes. And so, so that brings me to Anna B. Shepard, who was the costume designer. She worked on I just looked this up today because I was curious about it. She worked on Schindler's List, List, Inglorious Bastards, and Band of Brothers. Mm. They could not have picked a better costume designer to make me believe that I was looking at 1941. Absolutely. I, I just want to give a shout out to those two because I thought that they they did an amazing job. Of, of helping me believe I was in, in 1941 as I was watching the film. So I guess that takes us to the movie proper. If uh, if you've got any, unless you've got anything else to say. Not yet. I'm, okay. Yeah. So one thing I noticed too that, so so the film opens in uh, the cold Arctic, right? This is, I mean, this is one, I mean, I, I uh, without getting ahead of myself, I think this is a great cold open where uh, these guys are driving in, in, in the Arctic. They're there because somebody, some oil team has found a weird thing in the ice. Music is very mysterious, very sci-fi music that Sylvester is giving us. So he's very, he's very conscious of what he's trying to do. Joe, Joe Johnson does this a bit in the film where he very lovingly homages other films. Did you see what he was doing in this scene when they get to the to the thing in the ice? The thing in the ice? In is the ice. You're, did you is see that what you're did? getting at? He did Howard Hawks's scene. <laughs> a um, thing in the ice? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, uh, it was a little bit uh, on the nose there. But they they come up to this this big weird thing in the ice there's a little bit of it sticking up out of the ice and they've got like flares around the outline of the thing in the ice and uh there's a couple government agents there to to see what's going on u.s government agents whom i think are shield agents though they don't they don't ever really say and they go in and they're looking around and it's some kind of craft in the ice that they found i just think this scene is really well done anything you want to add here um no 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 uh, um, because i mean they're like you know well you know, we need to get a crane it's like well yeah they're like you don't get it you're gonna need a really big crane because this thing's huge. Yeah. And they go in. These guys don't really know what they're looking at. This is 2011. One of the guys, one of the researchers, wipes off some some crusted snow off of a thing of ice. And he says, hey, what's this? And in the ice, frozen, we see the red, white, and blue of something. It's, it's got a star in the center. And one of the, the other agent who was called over says, oh my God, this is my God. And he gets on the phone. He says, base, get the colonel. I don't care what time it is. This one's waited long enough. Bam, hard cut to Tonum Sweden. Uh, no, Tonum. Norway. Norway. Uh, 1941. I think it's 41. 42. I think it's 42. Yeah. And uh, take it away, Jason. We see a a, a villager uh, and I guess his son or a friend or an assistant, and they're they're uh, they're concerned because 
there's a a Nazi legion that has come into the into the village, and they're very frightened. And and the the older man says, is is not as concerned. You know, this happens a lot. We kind of get the the sense. Yes. Um, but the um, but I believe a, a a tank runs into the into the building and and the building kills the, the yeah. and and kills the old man's companion. And uh, we are introduced to Johann Schmidt. Johann no. Schmidt. Yeah. Um, uh, do you think now here's, here's Johann Schmidt uh, or the or the Red Skull is played by Hugo Weaving, and I like to imagine that Yo that that Hugo Weaving went to California and just hung out with Arnold Schwarzenegger for like months <laughs> to master the Austrian accent. Um, do you think that you're a historian? Do you think that there was uh, some something interesting that they that Joe Johnston or the writers were thinking about when they made Schmidt Austrian? Uh, the fact that Hitler was Austrian, maybe. I thought so. Yeah, I thought so. Um, but anyway, I just like to think of Hugo Weaving just like walking around uh, mastering his Arnold Schwarzenegger accent because he. St- I mean, like he sounds like Arnold to me. But anyway, it's just a. I no, I, I'm I'm with you. So go ahead. One of the themes that we're going to talk about as we go along, and I I suspect that both of us will be stumbling upon these little moments as we go along. Um, this movie has given me many revelations in my rewatches. One of them is Hugo Weaving is astoundingly brilliant in this movie. He really is. And I always thought he was good. I'm almost to, I'm almost to the point where I'm ready to say this is the best Marvel villain performance in the series. He's great. He's, it's interesting too, because he's, you, 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 you're onto something Um, because he doesn't have as much to work with as, uh, Loki. Uh, oh, what's the actor's name? Who plays Loki? Um, it's not coming to me. Um, it's not coming to me. That's crazy. It's not coming to me either, so I can't blame you. But I'll cut that in, and we'll we'll we'll. We'll move past and, and and delete the part where we can't think of it. Exactly, exactly. Let's find out who we play so I can so we can put it in together. Tom Hiddleston, it just came to me. Just came Tom, to me. Say, who is it? Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston. He's a complex character who isn't purely bad, right? Totally. Uh not even Kate Blanchett's Hella is purely bad. She is a she's a, a lot of these other characters who play bad guys get to have complexity. Johann Schmidt is worse than Hitler. <laughs> in this movie you know he's a I mean he's a bad guy he's a purely bad guy at least you know to me Hugo Weaving's Johann Schmidt is a James Bond villain in that he's all about being really really horrible and just chewing through scenes and because his interaction with the old man uh, so the old man is is hiding something he's hiding an artifact because just like uh, listeners all of us that have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark you know to the two of you out there that haven't uh you know, we discovered in Raiders of the Lost Ark that, that Hitler's had teams of archaeologists running all over the world looking for religious artifacts. Yeah. Johann Schmidt is one of is one of those people. And he, unlike Hitler, this film kind of teaches us, Schmidt is believes that all of this is very real. Schmidt knows what he's looking for. And the person, the, the old uh, villager who actually is hiding something, also knows that there is an artifact of great power in this in this building. And Schmidt, this is wonderful. The way Hugo Weaving plays it, he almost interacts with the villager in almost an intimate friendship kind of way. Like, you know, you and I, we're very similar. We, Everyone else believes that this is all malarkey, but you and I know better. We both know that what you're hiding is immensely powerful, but I think it is close. Yes, 
Yes, yes. And uh, the way Hugo weaving. Well, he comes in. Oh. When he, oh, it's great. When he comes into the room and he finds the old man on the ground, he's like, oh, I've been, I've looked for a long time for this. Uh, help him up. Help him up. Yeah, yeah. He does him come up. And uh, he's like, uh, earlier in the scene, this is kind of a subtle moment, too. We have a bunch of uh, German soldiers trying to take the, the top off of a sarcophagus, off of a kind of a, you know, yeah. big, and they can't move this big, con uh, this big stone lid. And when Hugo Weaving's Johann Schmidt comes in, he walks over after greeting the old man. He just pushes it off fairly easily. And he says, uh, and he picks up, this was Odin, the uh, the Tesseract was Odin's treasure. You do not bury this. And he just drops it and it shatters. But that's when he goes to that line. But it is close, I think. And uh, But it's right, you're right. The thing that I want to, the thing that I think you hit upon was like how friendly he is. He moves through the world like all of his conclusions are just everyone should agree with him. He shouldn't have to be as violent as he is, but he will be violent. He's not he, a good guy. Yeah. Everybody, he, everybody around him is beneath him, except for there's only one other person who he even talks to as an equal in the movie. Um, the old villager. He respects the villager. There's there's no scenario where he won't kill him. No, none. But he does respect him. Yes. Well, he, he commends him for making it so hard for for him to find the artifact. Yeah. And like uh, there's nothing here, and uh, the villager says there's nothing here, and he's like, well, there's no reason for everybody in your village to die. You must have nice grandchildren. I don't want to kill anybody. Maybe you can save them. And the and of course the old man points out, kind of nods to his with his head where it might be. And that's when Johann Schmidt finds the the tesseract, the cosmic cube, the 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 MacGuffin that he's been after. But it's hidden in this really nice wooden relief of Yggdrasil, the world tree. And uh and he finds the he finds the cosmic cube in this little compartment at the roots of the of the relief. Uh the world tree, the Yggdrasil is a uh, wait a minute, you're a Thor guy. What is Yggdrasil in, in Marvel Comics? Yggdrasil is the is is the tree of the universe. And as actually as we find out in the MCU later, and this isn't necessarily laid out in the comic, Yggdrasil is kind of the universe itself. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, at the end of all of its limbs are all of the realms of, of the universe. Uh, so he, he finds the cube and the old man offer the old the old man offers a little warning and he says, uh, you can't control that power. It's not for it's not for mortal it's not for normal man or something like that and uh, and that's when Johan says you're right and he shoots the old man and well at first he says he destroys he says to shoot the village the old man doesn't beg for the village though I noticed that today he doesn't beg but he knows there's no reason to beg I I well I noticed that too but you know I yeah I mean because he knew really that uh, they were all gonna die anyway yeah and so he doesn't beg but he does try and he does try and reach Johan where his where he's at which is mentally which is intellectually is you can't control this power yeah Johan of course doesn't think that so from there from the shelling of of norway uh that's right norway am i right yeah. um yep. from the shelling there we cut to brooklyn right brooklyn brooklyn new york the borough yeah. we're in a we're in a movie theater and we get our first we get our first picture of steve rogers at uh at a movie theater right the first picture of steve rogers is he's in he's in line to uh oh, that's right that's right enlist and uh and this is an interesting story we probably should comment on a little bit because they knew that they had to um they had to make it believable that Steve Rogers was originally very scrawny and then later became, you know, very buff and built and so forth. This and is they amazing effects, yes. Well, and they and they really didn't have the time. You know, there are other actors. Um, Christian Bale did this famously uh, with Batman Begins and The Machinist, which he did back to back. Yeah. And if you and if you watch The Machinist, you know, he weighs about 50 pounds. Yeah. And then you watch uh, Batman Begins and he, he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger and he he absolutely did all 
the work that was needed to do those two roles. And they just didn't have the time for Chris Evans to do any kind of weight loss or anything like that. So they they definitely decided that, you know, that they would just try to remove elements from the real Chris Evans. Well, yeah. Plays Cap- Sometimes use a body double. They did different things. It, it took, a, it was a lot of work. Yeah. This was not something that was obvious to them. If you watch the making of, this was a lot like in the uh, Richard Donner Superman trying to figure out how Superman was going to fly. They knew this effect had to work. Yeah. Or they would lose the audience. And they were right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, how do we, how do we do this in such a way that we don't, that we don't damage the narrative? And they decided that they would just kind of take elements away from Chris Evans in these scenes. And it, it works. It really works. Um, I mean, they use, I think the reason why it works so well is they didn't lean on any one technique. Too yeah. Much. Like, like uh, there's, st- there's clearly a lot of digital manipulation in the scene where he's got no shirt on and he's about to go get his physical, right? In, right. In that first scene. In other scenes, they use forced perspective to make him seem smaller. Forced perspective is where you, uh, you'll have one character closer to the camera than a- a- another character farther away. And you'll, you'll scale props to, to make, Make, uh, the character farther away look smaller by having props that are bigger you know like uh, yes if, if you if you if you want a, a deep dive into this I recommend that you guys all see the uh, the extended uh, special features on the Lord of the Rings they talk all about this yes technique. but another yes. thing that they did is really simple is they just clothed uh, Chris Evans in clothes that were too big for him mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and in conjunction with that forced <laughs> perspective technique it makes him look really small that, that, that effect has to work for the transformation that we see later on to work right and it does I mean yes. I think you're absolutely right you believe it when the the army physician stamps 4f on his papers i'm saving your life exactly and so what we find out is that that steve has been going from recruiter to recruiter changing his name trying to find some doctor that will let him in the army yeah and uh then we see him in a movie theater he ends up in a fight with a bully who doesn't care about the uh the first reel which is talking about uh world war ii he just wants to get on to the to the cartoon so he can watch the movie steve gets himself in a fight because the guy's being disrespectful to World War II veterans and he gets beat up pretty badly pretty badly he gets beat up pretty badly gets saved by his buddy Bucky Barnes well but 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 before Bucky shows up it's very clear that Steve Rogers is not going to give up he's no coward and and, and the bully who who realizes that that uh, if Steve keeps this up he's gonna die because, yeah, yeah. because because he has no ability to uh, to defeat this guy but Steve says I could do this all day yes yes I mean he's no coward yeah he'll stand up for what he believes in and he'll stand up to two bullies um, but he's not exactly the a guy who is equipped to deal with bullies Sebastian Stan comes along who the guy who plays Bucky Barnes Steve's best friend in his uh, army dress uniform very handily sends this guy packing yes and then they go to uh, they go on a double date that's, that that Bucky set up uh, something about this film that I, I worried about when I first saw it was how fast the pace of the story is but subsequent viewings has made me think that the, the pace is fine and it's a very Marvel pace and it's a pace that that Stanley and Jack Kirby would have been really happy with because in the in the foreword of the Marvel Masterworks Captain America I'm reading Stanley talks about as he's rereading these these issues he, he was marveling <laughs> at how how quick the pace was of their stories and how much story they packed into 15 pages because again you know Tales of Suspense shared half the issue with Iron Man so they had to tell these stories really fast and yeah. 
the Captain America film captures that. In fact, all the Marvel movies capture the the fast pace of Marvel storytelling really well. But we're off and running from there to the Stark Expo, which is very much reminiscent of the World Expo. Is that what it's called? Yeah, absolutely. Which was a a big festival. We'd call them. A, we'd call it a convention today, but it was you know just a place where people could come and marvel at futurists talking about their ideas or new inventions. Uh, the World Fair. The World Fair is what I'm thinking of. And yeah. and but Tony Stark's father, Howard Stark, has created his version of the World Fair, which is the Stark Expo, and that's what they go to see. Um, and we get to see what kind of guy Howard Stark was before we meet him in the uh, in the in the Iron Man movies and the Avengers movies. And he's played very well by Dominic Cooper here. Very well. And we see that Tony was actually much more of a chip off the old block than than he would have <laughs> yeah. realized. Yeah. Howard is a, a very ambitious inventor, but he doesn't have all the all the technology or the materials that he needs yet to, to see his visions through. But he's way ahead of his time. He is way ahead of his time. But we only get a glimpse of him. Uh, Steve Rogers is not interested in this double date. He sees a recruiting s- station and he, he decides to go have another try. And it's at this point where he has a kind of confrontation with his best friend who's like, you can't keep doing this. You're going to get caught. It's illegal to lie about yourself on enlistment forms. They have an interesting talk. Do you think that this this works? Do you think that, do you think that Steve's rationale, he basically says, I'm not trying to prove myself. I don't have anything to prove. I'm There are men laying down their lives and I don't have any right to do anything less than my fellow Americans. That's basically what he's saying, right? Yeah, I mean, it works because that's the character that Steve Rogers, I mean, is. Because, I mean, actually, that's one of the things that, that also works is because, you know, you're quite right when you describe that Bucky um, dispatched the bully very quickly. Bucky's a very capable guy. You know, he's a very athletic guy. Obviously, getting in the military was not hard for him at all. And yet, his, you know, his best friend is this guy that seems to weigh about 120 pounds. And I feel like that as the viewer, we buy that because we see very quickly that Steve Rogers has a heart of gold. Yep. And Bucky is a good guy. And he sees that. Like, he sees things in his friend that maybe other people don't see. Um, I mean, anyone would see if they looked. Yeah. But, but you know, most people are very dismissive of him. But Bucky is not. And so, you, you know, you just kind of recounted the dialogue. Bucky's worried about him. He's worried about him getting in trouble. But he totally understands what he's trying to do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and Bucky tries to counsel him, too. He's like, you know, there are a bunch of good jobs, important yeah. jobs here in the States that you can do. And uh, but Steve doesn't think that, that that's right. I get the sense that, I mean, Steve Rogers isn't goodwill hunting. He's not brilliant like that. But he's the he's the he is certainly the more cerebral of the two of them. I think Steve's thought quite a lot about why he wants to do what he wants to do. Steve Rogers is a capable artist. I mean, I think he's the guy who spends more time probably reading. You know, I mean, his rationale for wanting to go to World War II is not everybody else's, I don't think. His is more principled than yeah. than those guys bombed us in Pearl Harbor and, and you know, we got to go punch him in the mouth for that. That's not his principle. Yeah. You know, overhearing this confrontation, though, is Dr. Erskine. Played by Stanley Tucci. Who took the role because he was going to be able to deploy his German accent, which he had not been able to do in any film. His accent's great. <laughs> great. Um, you, you speak um, a little German, I think, so you should you should be able to say. Uh, well, um, he doesn't speak any German, though, so I didn't need to use that, did I? Yeah, no. Um, so here I would say, I'm tempted to say, Stanley Tucci is so unbelievable in this movie. He delivers the best performance in the movie. He, he delivers but, a pivotal performance. But the reason that I'm not going to say that is because there are so many great performances in this movie that it's hard it's hard to choose among them. Yeah. But he he is wonderful in this role. Well, he does he, he does he does a lot of heavy lifting to kind of push the story forward with his with his acting. But he hears what Steve says, and that gives him an idea because he's out looking for recruits. 
recruits. He's looking for a specific recruit. That's right. That's right. And because uh, so there's a project, Super Soldier Serum, where the the U.S. government, the Allied powers, are looking to create a super soldier and to do to replicate it and to create a super army. But um, Dr. Erskine seems to have a different idea. Yes. Because as we find out later, he has been bitten before by his by his uh, choice of subject and he is looking for the man uh, he's looking for a good man that's right that's and, right and when and when he overhears what steve says to bucky he immediately thinks this is my guy it's, that's right that's right so he confronts steve and exposes steve to his shenanigans so so are you from palermo uh or is this the steve <laughs> rogers from bronx well that was funny too uh when they were arguing when bucky and steve were arguing one of the places that steve had said he was from really offended bucky because they're they're new york boys right right and uh, i know one of and he's like new jersey really steve yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah. and that was a nice little regional touch but but he's like uh so you want to go the, the, the thing that erskine does is he's like do you want to kill germans is that why you want to join the army do you and, want to kill nazis that's right you want to kill nazis and they have a little talk and like uh and Steve says, well, I, I don't want to kill anyone. Yeah. I don't like bullies. I don't care where they're from. Yes. Well, that's like, right, he says, you want to kill Nazis? And uh, and Steve says, well, where, where, hey, where are you from? It's like uh, Brooklyn. But before that, Germany. <laughs> And, uh, is that <laughs> no, Queens. I'm I'm from Queens. Qu- Queens, yeah. And he says, but uh, re- but before that, Germany. Does that bother you? Yeah. No. And Steve just says, no, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Which is interesting because there was a lot of German prejudice after as World War II was kicking off. I mean, yeah. in our hometown, there was a town called Germantown. Yes. But during World War II, they changed their name. It was during World War One. <laughs> World War One. Oh, sorry. But there was a German anti anti German sentiment in the states. Um, and they changed it, and they changed it to Pershing. Pershing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh, so that's when he. Says what you said is uh, go ahead and say it again. Do, do you want to kill Germans? Do you want to kill Nazis? And Stanley Tucci's face is yes, it's a test. And uh, but that's when he says, Okay, uh, I can offer you a chance. And he says, Welcome to the army. Um, yep. and then we see some more of those great effects. Uh, almost it's almost the next scene where we're at the boot camp. Uh-huh. And, he's, uh, now, he's, he's now in the military in the special science division. That, yes, uh, yes. Special Science Division. Now we meet the two other characters that are going to be pivotal to this movie and to selling the movie. First, though, we're setting up the stage because Chris Evans is a very athletic guy, but he looks yeah. like a midget. Uh, oh, that's probably not the right word. I'll cut that out. He looks like a very tiny person, a kid amongst giants, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that's when Colonel Phillips and Peggy Carter show up. Yep. Uh, you take it away. Take it away. I. I this is where um, Peggy Carter is a an officer. She's uh, of the science division. Uh, I believe she's from England. I think that that's established. I guess and she's on loan from England. She, yeah, she's on loan from England, but she has a, she has a great deal of authority mm-hmm. um, that um, that I think that it's safe to say later in her MCU life she won't have. Yeah. Um, but but here during the war, she you know she's she's got a certain amount of authority. I guess we don't get a good a good idea of what her opinion is of Steve initially. She seems to have some respect for him. Whereas uh, uh, Chester Phillips, played by Tommy Lee Jones, is very skeptical about this this 90-pound weakling that has been brought onto his base. Makes me want to cry! <laughs> and he has a conversation with Erskine about how in looking 
looking for a candidate for the super soldier serum that rogers is not the guy and erskine is kind of kind of clear that that uh he is the is the clear choice yeah yeah and um uh phillips is has no respect for him and feels like that uh, a war is won by soldiers with guts. Let me push back on you a little bit. I don't think that Tommy Lee, I don't think that Phillips has no respect for Rogers. He doesn't think he's a fighting man. He, he, um, doesn't, he doesn't He doesn't dislike Rogers. He, when you brought a 90 pound asthmatic on my base, I thought, okay, you can use him like a, a durable or something, somebody to test these things out on. But he, he says, you stick a needle in that kid's arm, it's going to go through him. He doesn't think that Steve will, I don't, I don't think he thinks that Steve will survive the test. I think he res- he respects Steve as a human, but he's not a soldier. And I think that that's that's sort of how how Phillips looks at these people. But you were getting ready to say no, and I I would push back against your pushback in that because because he says that you know a, a war's won with guts, yeah. and then he he disarms a grenade and then pulls the pin and throws it. And says grenade, totally expecting Steve to head for the hills. Well, he was well, he was trying to prove a point because. The guy he wants to pick is a bully. Is a bully, and he thinks that guy's got guts. Yes, and that Steve doesn't, because Steve, being being so small, really, when it when push comes to shove, he's going to be the one that heads for the hills. Yeah, and instead, he's the guy that falls on the grenade. That's to right. Save right. to save all these other people who mistreat him. Yes. Did you see who else was running towards the grenade? No, Peggy. I didn't notice that. Yeah, Peggy runs towards the grenade too, but Steve's closer because because of course. Tommy Lee Jones didn't throw it right beside him and the doctor. <laughs> he threw it towards right. the soldiers. I don't know if he was expecting I mean, I think he was expecting the real soldiers to do something. I don't know if he was expecting Steve to be a coward, but Steve, everybody scatters but Steve, and Steve throws him, like you said, he throws himself on the grade and tells everybody to get away. And to Colonel Phillips's credit, he accepts the comeuppance there, but he does say go ahead. He's still skinny. Okay. He storms off. Um, but, uh, but Stanley Tucci's point has been made. And he, and you can see it in his face he doesn't he doesn't rub it in except with his smile yeah um he he knows who steve is from from the minute he met him he knew that this was the guy he'd been looking for this is the guy that he would have chosen first if he had had the right information because as as we'll find out later he's tried this experiment before and did not choose wisely yeah Um, this time he knows he's got the right guy yeah well i'll I'll say that i'll say what i think about that in a minute the soldier serum and what erskine knows but i want to pause for a second you and i have on this podcast been incredibly hard on tommy lee jones in the past for batman uh <laughs> forever yes i want to say that this is tommy lee jones at the top of his form he is so good in this film well and as you said everybody's very good in this film i mean he doesn't have a lot of lines but he is he is a great actor when he wants to be a part of a project and he seemed to be he seemed to be dialed in for this so i i think i I think I want to drop a marker here in response to what you're saying. And and this is a big statement because I'm the kind of guy, like I'll go to YouTube and watch scenes from The Fugitive with him in it yeah. because they're so good. And Tommy Lee Jones, everybody won uh, uh, the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for Fugitive. This is my favorite performance by Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, is it? Yeah, no, I, it's one of my favorites. I don't know if it's my favorite. It probably is 
my favorite, but but uh, he's so good in this movie. Uh, and you guys will have to just see it and, and, and judge for yourselves, but every little gesture and tick, it helps too that I think he's around a bunch, I think it helps too with Tommy Lee Jones that he's around a bunch of actors that he respects, it seems. Because he's, yeah. you know, he and Stanley Tucci have such great chemistry. He and everybody in this movie have great chemistry. Yes. Um, which is something that you don't see in the Batman film, Batman, Batman Forever. But his general, I mean, it seems like he could have stumbled right out of World War II. Tommy yeah. Haley Atwell, she asserts herself very. Uh, Haley Atwell plays Peggy Carter, and she uh, she puts the bully in his place the moment she meets him because he he's like, "What's with the accent, ma'am? I, I thought we were joining the American Army." And she walks right up to him and says, "Put your right foot forward." And, and she said, "And he says, we're we gonna dance. I got some moves you might like." And she fucking floors him with like an elbow to his jaw. Right? See, and and as we right, and as we go along here. I, I love Haley Atwell. Oh. Um, I, I love her. I love her in this movie. I love her. Peggy Carter is one of my favorite characters in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes. And she 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 is just outstanding in this movie. The problem with this movie is there's so many great performances in this movie that, that you almost feel like that, that, that all you're doing is just kind of lavishing praise on everybody. Yeah, yeah. But the ensemble cast of this movie is is really off the charts. It, no, it's, 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 it's pretty incredible. So she's, she's very good and we kind of see her we see we get to see her respect for Steve grow uh, in several little scenes she's very impressed when he jumps on the grenade earlier um, there's a scene where the platoon is jogging behind a jeep and uh, they come to a flag and this drill sergeant says okay whoever can race up to the top of the flagpole and bring the flag and hand it to me gets to ride back uh, to the base this is halfway point so you've still got miles to run and everybody in the platoon's fighting to get up the pole and the, the drill sergeant's like and nobody got up the pole and 20 years um uh i think he says 20 years could be less could be more um but uh he says all right everybody let's go let's go and steve walks up to the flagpole pulls the the safety pin out of the 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 cotter pin out of the bolt that holds the pole up pulls the bolt out and the flagpole falls over and he walks up picks up the flag hands it to the drill sergeant and gets in the jeep and it's just a great moment of seeing how steve can solve problems isn't and seeing and seeing Peggy Carter's reaction, she she's really impressed. She's impressed, the, uh, but the, everybody's reaction, everybody is acting in this scene, and it's really nice. The drill sergeant is like, "Well, that was a uh, <laughs> right. something I haven't seen before." Um, he's not mad, but he's flabbergasted. You know, I think it even earns a little respect from the rest of the platoon because nobody jeers or anything like that. I mean, a lot of them are just. It looks like everybody, including the drill sergeant, is like, "Well, I wish I would have thought of that when I ran this course." You know, um, and Peggy doesn't say anything it's just a look on her face that she never shows steve her approval right you know and so so then erskine has picked steve for the program we get that from the we get that from the from that from the conversation that that powell and and erskine had and we see steve in his room kind of nervous and right. that's when we get the the conversation that you want you've been kind of i think you've been wanting to talk about a little bit when when erskine has the heart to heart with steve rogers um right. steve's nervous but go ahead i'll let you lead well that's where uh, of course uh, he brings it was it schnapps schnapps peach schnapps uh, that he brings in and two glasses and this is where this is where Erskine reveals to Steve that he's not the first person that he's attempted to use this formula with uh, that the first one was uh, Johann Schmidt uh, Johann Schmidt and um, and it's here that Erskine kind of points out that there's something about the, the super soldier serum that he did not expect that it, it enhances kind of the, the native qualities of the person um, uh, who receives it that um, a good man becomes better and a bad man becomes worse and yeah. uh, 
uh, we discover that Johann Schmidt uh, was his original subject, and um, Schmidt uh, took the serum, and it did something terrible to him. Yeah. And he doesn't tell Steve what it is, but he does point out that the reason why uh, Steve is the right man for this is because of what he has inside, his courage, yeah. his commitment, his his ideals. And he even says at the end, you know, promise me that you will stay exactly, no matter what happens tomorrow, promise me that you will stay who you are right now. A good, points at his, yep. He points to his heart and he says, a good That's right. And then he, he, he almost gives him schnapps and then says, uh, oh, you have a procedure tomorrow. What am I doing? He says, and, uh, no, no. What he says is, what I am doing is what he says. What I yeah, am wh- doing. What I am doing. And, and then, uh, like, well, we'll have it later. It's like, me, I do not have procedure tomorrow. <laughs> he ends up having the schnapps anyway. <laughs> um, simultaneous to all this, we find out, too, that sh- that in Germany, Schmidt has found out Erskine is in America. We mean he's Arnim. been hunting him. He's, he's been, been hunting, hunting for him. him. And uh, Arnim Zola. The, okay, let me pause for a minute. Arnim Zola is, is a kind of fan service treat. Now. You know, when we first see him very early on, uh, after they've got the, co- after after uh, Schmidt has the, the Cosmic Cube and they're doing some uh, experiments with it, the first moment we see Arnim Zola is in a big screen, right? Right. Now fans will recognize this as a really brilliant uh, thing. Arnim Zola in the comic book in our era is is a cyborg. His mind has been put into a robot and his face is projected on a television screen. And that's right. the first that's the first moment we see Arnim Zola in, in the film, but it's, he's looking through a big lens or something. And Schmidt's like uh, anyway, I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on what they're doing, but but it's just a really nice moment. Anyway, uh, Schmidt uh, is a brilliant guy. Arnim Zola is a brilliant guy. And these two are working for Hydra, the the basically the German, the, the Nazi equivalent of the uh, strategic science division. Skull wants, the Skull wants the, I'm sorry, Schmidt or the Red Skull wants to use the Cosmic Cube to power a, a new, he wants to power all of Arnim Zola's ideas with right. this, this new power source. But anyway, Zola visits uh, with Schmidt. Schmidt's place reminds, Schmidt's uh, base reminds me a lot of the base in Guns of Navarone, by the way. True, yeah. Um, uh, anyway, you guys should see Guns of Navarone. And he finds, uh, Schmidt has found Zola, I'm sorry, Schmidt has found Erskine and uh, uh, Erskine is a little hesitant about all this and he's, he's uh, uh, I know uh, Schmidt's like uh, you do not approve he's like well I don't think that it's not likely that Erskine will succeed again and uh, but Schmidt's convinced that if he does this is their only weapon against me is another me right Zolom says shall I give the order it is given what do you think Toby Jones the guy who plays Arnim Zola is doing with his Zola uh, you know it <laughs> This you time around, I, I think that I do because this time around, I actually the way that he plays Zola throughout the film, including the scene, the scene where we're at, he seems to have some doubts about w- where they're going. Yes, and I, I don't know if that's loyalty to Der Führer or just th- th- this is too much, this is too far. But the way that he plays Zola throughout this film is is almost a I'm not sure I really signed up for this. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that's what I get out of it. And I, I get the sense, and we'll see this later on, at some point, Arnim Zola and Johann Schmidt have divergent goals. Yes. In the MCU. Um, we don't see that in this movie, so we don't really know why Zola is is conflicted. I think I do know why Zola is conflicted. I think because he is, a, is committed to the ideology that maybe he and Schmidt started out with in Hydra, which is about order. Order mm-hmm. at any cost. Right. At some point, 
Schmidt has a different idea, it seems. And that is, he never spells it out, but Schmidt wants to, he's he's a, he's the villain of, of, of every cartoon we ever saw. He wants to rule the world. Later in the film, and I'm jumping ahead, but later when, when the Red Skull Schmidt explicitly makes the break from Hitler and the Third Reich, he says to Zola, uh, I'm sorry, but we both knew that we could no longer, you know, th- th- that we were done with Hitler living under Hitler's shadow. Yeah. And Zola doesn't doesn't really, as in many of these scenes, yeah. does not really seem to fully be on board with that. And yet he says, we both knew. Yeah. And it's all, and it's almost like that Schmidt assumes that Zola's with him all the way. Yeah. And Zola kind of knows that and knows he has to play the part, but he is full of doubts, whatever his private reasons are. Yeah. So I got the sense that he was about to do with the order to kill Erskine, but so many of Trump's aides and and uh, secretaries uh, of state did with Trump's orders, which was take them and defile them away in the round file that is a waste paper can. You know, yeah. I don't think he was going to give the order to kill Erskine, you know, but the skull took it out of his hand. During this whole time, by the way, the Red Skull is standing for a portrait. Yes. And when, when Zola enters the room, the Red Skull turns off the light. And then as he's leaving, I think this is a test that that Skull hits him up with. Because I think the Red Skull senses some of Zola's doubts. He turns on the light and says, what do you think? Making, we don't see it, but making Zola look at him in his true form. We see, we see the red paint. It's very clear that this painter is using nothing but red. Exactly, exactly. And uh, so- This is a great scene, but go on, yeah. yeah, For comic book fans, the red paint, we know what that means. We do. We know know that his, uh, so for listeners, up to this point, Hugo Weaving has played this role as just himself, just his face, no makeup, nothing like that. But that's not what the Red Skull actually looks like. The Red Skull is just that, a a figure who has a Red Skull uh, for a face. Uh, But up to this point, that's not what we see. However, it is implied that in this scene, he has taken his fleshly face off and is posing for this uh, for this portrait. And by the way, the artist is horrified. Oh yeah. Well, and and when when Schmidt says Zola, what do you think? And Zola turns to look at the painting. The artist is horrified. If this this only ends two ways: Zola says something positive about the painting and he lives, or Zola says something negative about the painting and Schmidt kills the painter. Right? Yes. Yes. And and Zola says it's a masterpiece, and you can just see the artist relax. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a scene that probably not everybody catches. It's a it's a moment in the scene that not everybody catches. But when you do, it's really glorious. Yes, yes. And then, but I think I think that was a test that that Schmidt put on him there. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, so cut to to Brooklyn. Uh, Peggy Carter is driving with uh, Steve to the to the test site, which is hidden somewhere in Brooklyn. Is that right? Yes. The is, uh, oh, the Bronx. Yeah, I think it's in the Bronx. And Steve's kind of regaling her with all the places he's been beat up. Oh no, I think it. So so it would have been in Brooklyn then. If, if he'd been beat up there because he's from Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and she and they have this little talk and, uh, and she's like, do you ever think about running away? And he's like, well, once you start running, they don't let you stop. Yeah. And uh, and Peggy Peggy says something interesting and I didn't notice it until the past couple of viewings when she says, well, I know something about that. I know what it's like to have doors slammed in your face even though you're capable, yeah. you know. And uh, and then Steve asks her a question. He's like, well, why would you want to, why would you want to join the army if you're a beautiful dame? I mean, woman, I mean, you are beautiful to any kind of stumbles around. Yeah. They have a little cute little moment. You have no idea how to talk to how to win. <laughs> yeah, interact with the woman, yeah. and and it's it's a nice moment. And they get to uh to the uh to the test site, which is a little shop that's disguised. It's a, it's a it's the it's a military installation that's dis- 
disguise as a shop, a bookstore, I think, uh, with an old woman who's the guard at the front, which I thought was a little nod to Three Days of the Condor, but the old yeah. woman who who has like who's who a similar installation in Three Days. Yeah. And I'm gonna go ahead and say this now. Joe Johnston makes a lot of little nods to pieces of cinema prior to this. I've mentioned the thing, he mentions a nod to the to the thing. Uh, I just mentioned the the elements of intrigue from the three days of the condor. But overarching all of this is the ghost of Steven Spielberg and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Very true. Um, Very true. The cinematography. I looked to see if the cinematographer had worked on Raiders. They, they hadn't. But but the cinematographer loves to do a lot of Steven Spielberg-y techniques with the light glare from like lights in the movie. They, they have this like little horizontal glare, which Steven Spielberg yeah. likes to use a lot. The film quality is very Steven Spielberg. It, it reminds me of, it very much reminds me of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I, I just, not grotesquely, not, he doesn't beat you over the head with it. If you're a fan of Raiders, you're going to notice these things. And he doesn't even, and, and Joe Johnson and his cinematographer, they don't ape all of Steven Spielberg's techniques, but you can clearly tell they're trying to set us in that that universe. Even with that line that you mentioned earlier by by Schmidt, and the Fuhrer digs for trinkets in the desert. That's a, that's a reference to Raiders. Yes, yes you know, it is. I, I like to think that this is the same universe, in this universe, Indiana Jones is in the desert at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they go down and uh, into one of the most glorious sets in the movie, which is the, the Super Soldier Serum Room. Yes, yes. This set is glorious. I mean, it, um, I don't know if younger viewers will be able to have this experience, but my dad, my, my grandpa, I'm sorry, my grandpa worked on old cars a lot, right? And so I got to see a lot of cars from the 40s, a lot of technology of the 40s, right? The right. dials, the, 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 the quality of the lights, everything. Everything was on transistors or, you know, transistor-powered yeah. radios. And I just got the sense that I understood that room, not because I'm from the 40s or I'm old enough, but, but because I had that experience with my grandpa of working on cars with him and, and seeing those old... I mean, everything's dials. It's not digital, you know, like we have today. Well, so in, in other words, the production design here is spot on and top-notch It is. It up felt and down the line. Authentic. It felt very authentic. And there's a bunch of people who watch this experiment. It's an experiment because Steve is a test, right? If Steve works out, then they know that everybody else is going to work out. Yeah. One, of, one of the things I really dig about it is how worried Peggy Carter looks. It's very clear at this point that she cares about him. Yeah. She's not attracted to him yet. No. But she, she really, really cares about him. She doesn't want anything to happen to him. Uh, and I kind of think the way Haley Atwell plays it, she realizes it here. Yeah. Like, like yeah. actually, before this time, she's just escorting this guy to this experiment. But when she realizes that he's going to go through it, with it. I think she's kind of her character. She's kind of surprised that she's really worried about him. Yeah, and ve and very protective of him. Absolutely. And uh, um, she, of course, she knows Howard, Howard Stark. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, you know, Howard's going to go through with anything, and uh, and Steve's going to go through with this no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. And she and she knows that, and she's very afraid for him. So so Steve's going to get in this tube, and Erskine explains to the audience, some senators and other people, uh, and the general and Colonel Phillips, he's going to get the serum and then he's going to be locked into this chamber where he's going to be exposed to vita rays right. which is which is straight from the comic book as i thought was a nice touch um and those will kind of catalyze the the formula um but it's really cute when uh when steve gets his first injection of the of what he thought was the serum that wasn't so bad that was penicillin <laughs> 
and uh, and they close up the so then he gets like the so so on along each of his arms there's like six huge vials of something glowing and blue it looks terrible and one of the things that I think is great that ties so much of the MCU mythology together is the moment he gets all of those all that super soldier serum goes into him his eyes open up just like one of our other favorite Marvel characters and that is Bruce Banner yeah and this kind of so he's having a reaction very similar to what Bruce Banner goes through which is important because in the MCU Bruce Banner was working on the super soldier serum himself right right and in the Incredible Hulk movie uh, something that uh, General uh, Ross doesn't realize is that the the soldier the super soldier serum does what Erskine says it does he doesn't know that it magnifies character traits good or bad right 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 right, right. and it it affects everybody differently which is why it probably should never be used if there's been a disaster (laughs) Jason and I have been joking about this since the fourth grade if there's if you want to know a disaster is about to happen all you need to know is is someone working on the super soldier serum because it only worked once um so anyway uh Steve gets his shots. He looks very skinny when he goes in. He's uh, and uh, and the, the, this tube closes over this very serious and intimidating tube. Erskine's like, "Are you okay?" And Steve has this great line that causes a little chuckle through everybody. He's like, "I suppose it's too late to go to the bathroom." And, and, and Erskine just like, "We will proceed." Like, yes. And uh, and then they they turn up the Vita rays, and it's uh, I mean, some people are wearing goggles. It's so bright. What happens? And Steve starts screaming from inside the tube. And this is where we see Haley's duty take a back seat to her I'm sorry Peggy's duty take a back seat to her humanity but she yeah. runs forward because Steve is screaming he's yeah. in a lot of pain and uh, she's like stop the procedure and and they're ready to do it uh, Erskine is about to stop it and that's when Steve yeah. says no I can do it and yeah. they ramp up the Vita rays then it's silent in the tube and they, they rush to it to open it up and when the tube opens up because the effects have been so good we are yeah. all amazed by the transformation that's happened Steve Indeed. Rogers has gone from 90 pound weakling to 200 150 pound monster of American patriotism. (laughs) Right. Right. He is, uh, his pants are now short. I mean, he kind of has done a mini Hulk transformation. And, uh, and I got to tell you, Haley Atwell is so awesome when she comes up to see if he's okay because she's kind of transfixed by how he looks. Yeah. And in fact, she wants to kind of like comfort him and she reaches her hand out and then kind of pulls it back like like it's a hot stove. Like, no, no I better not because she's, you know, she's kind of drawn to how he looks now. Yes, uh, I guess I read some trivia tr- today that that was a bit of improvisation on Haley Atwell's part. She had not seen Steve, she had not seen Chris Evans like that, like outside of his, you know, his uh, costuming. And so, right. so when she reached out and touched him, it was, she was like, it was something that Haley Atwell did. Yeah. Put her hand back and was like, anyway, they kept it in because it, it was a great little moment. No, no it's great. Yeah. Uh, and she said, she was, well, I was very taken with Chris Evans' physique in interviews. And I and, mean, and, and Chris Evans really put in the work, you know. And this is where things kind of go south a little bit for Steve for a while because in the within the group of senators and stuff is an aide who is not up to any good played by a very chameleon like uh, Richard Armitage yeah he plays a uh, who people may not know but he plays a uh, Thorin in The Hobbit right. and he plays Wolverine in the podcast the amazing uh, <laughs> the amazing narrative podcast uh, the Wolverine I, which is a show I recommend everybody listen to he's a he's an agent for Schmidt and he's there to kill Erskine which he 
does just before, just right after Erskine recognizes that it's uh, that he's uh, that he's an agent for Hydra. Yes. Before he can warn anybody, the guy sets off a bomb that he's left, shoots Erskine. Erskine falls over. He shoots a couple other people. Haley Atwell takes a couple shots at him, hits him, hits the agent. She gives chase, and before Steve can join her in that chase, he runs to Erskine, and Erskine only gets one moment, and that's when he puts uh, that same finger on his heart. This is what you you kind of get the sense that Erskine accepts that he's going to die. And just one last reminder, if you if you just stick with what I know you are, everything's going to be fine. It, it's a great moment. It is a great moment. And then and then Steve is does exactly what Erskine would want him to do, and he goes and chases the guy. We see Peggy Carter being very capable. She almost gets the guy, this 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 Hydra agent. Uh, she gets the driver. She gets the driver. Yeah, the driver. That was kind of brutal for a PG-13 movie, I thought. I mean, it's not gory, yeah. but like, you know, just the way that the, the stunt person fell over after he gets shot in the wrecks uh the car is pretty well done and she is gonna so the so then sorry then uh, the agent pushes the guy out and he tries to run peggy carter down in the in the car that he's in and uh just before she's about to get run down which i think was a trade-off she seemed to be willing to make if she could kill this guy right um she gets tackled by steve rogers soon to be captain america and then cap gives her ch- gives chase to the guy in a great scene before uh sorry chases the guy all through the through the through brooklyn is that right that's where he's from right Brooklyn barefoot running through Brooklyn jumping over cars it's a great action scene I don't want to labor too long over this there's a moment where Steve has to hold a door up to shield himself from some bullets and this is the first time I noticed that there was a star on the door of the cab that he holds up like a shield which is a little call forward actually instead of a call back and anyway catches the guy and the guy says uh, the guy basically says you can't stop us you know you cut one of our heads off two more take its place and he pulls us he pulls one of his teeth out with his tongue the cyanide capsule and he dies. Right, right. And this sets off a, a kind of a bad chain of events for for Captain America or the future Captain America. There's no more super soldier serum. They can't duplicate Erskine's experiments. And so the super soldier serum is done. Sounds like the the, the strategic science division is over for a bit. Right. And, and Phillips basically thinks that Steve has got to go off to Alamogordo where they're working on a bunch of top secret science projects, right? Yeah. I mean, he's basically just a freak now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Phillips, Colonel Phillips, doesn't know what to do with him. Doesn't have the imagination to know what to do with him, I don't think. Right. But there's a senator in the room who has an idea of what to do with him, and that's to sell war bonds. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, yeah. Now, the next segment is Steve basically going around, basically doing, like, USO tours in a in a Captain America outfit, uh, which is the Captain America outfit that I think they used in the... It's almost like the one that they used in the, in the 40s serial of Captain America. There was a serial. Yeah, and, and, and it's the same kind of garish colors that you would even find in the comic book, although you know it's the costume is well done. Yeah, but this this section of the movie is very well done, and actually, and again, not something I noticed the first time that I watched it. Uh, for you and for listeners, one of the things about um, I'm sure many of us have seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. When Steven Spielberg made Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, he really relished the very opening scene where he got to do a big dance number, yeah. which because he loved the old Hollywood movies, musicals, dance movies, and he had never directed a scene where there was this kind of dance number, and he kind of relished doing that, and 
that's something about Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom that, you know, people don't always talk about that, you know, that there was this dance number and it actually, you know, required a different skill set than what's required to make an action movie. This part of Captain America, the first Avenger is, is like that. Yeah. It's, it, it's choreographed. It's um, the special effects are, 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 are done in such a way that they're very reminiscent of these you know, kind of old uh, films from, you know, Hollywood that, you know, w- with all kinds of dance numbers and effects and, and sets and, and, you know, you know, everything's on a stage and yeah. this is all really, really well done and very unexpected. I mean, actually, yeah. when I first saw this movie, I did not expect the movie to go in this, you I, know, I didn't either. to this and, place. And, yeah. it takes, and it's about, it's, it's not a lot of screen time. It's about 10 minutes of screen time. When I first saw it, I thought it was all very cute and fun. And I thought it could have been cut is what I thought. I think I might, I might have agreed with you. Yeah. I don't think that anymore. No. Oh, I definitely don't. I, now I think it's brilliant. No, me too. Me too. But what we see is that Captain America, this, this persona that Steve Rogers has taken on to sell war bonds. We see him go from not doing the lines very well of selling war bonds, right? To becoming really good at it. He, he becomes, yeah. very, he becomes a very good performer because he has to, he reads off of his shield. Uh, so he gets a really, goofy, he gets a really goofy looking, you know, shield, like something like a knight might've had years, years ago in a medieval period. But, oh, ah, not only that, that is the shield that Captain America had in the first issue. It's true, Captain. true. Yeah. True. Uh, they change it to a circular one shortly thereafter, but you're right. It's a, uh, but he has to read off the back of it. Yeah. By the end of this montage, he doesn't have to read off the back of it anymore. And yeah. the, the women sing a Captain America song. It's not when Captain America throws his mighty shield. Um, <laughs> but some other one, it's it's a very, it's a very time period appropriate song. Somehow this, this gig takes him all the way to being on an actual USO armed services tour. Because right. So after, after being great at this, he's in front of a bunch of real soldiers. And the, it's interesting. It definitely, this, this transition from war bond tour in America is very colorful. It's very bright. It's very buoyant and jubilant. Right. The palette changes when we go to the European war theater. It's almost like we're in Saving Private Ryan at that point. Yes. It's, it's another visual yes. chapter of the film. It's grayer. It's not desaturated. It's just grayer. Right. Um, and I can't remember where he's at uh, in in the war, but the soldiers don't. Me either, yeah. The soldiers don't like him. Yeah. And they start heckling him. And he tries to be respectful because he respects them, you know? Right. He says something like, uh, We're all on the same team. Yeah. And uh, somebody throws a tomato at him and they bring back the girls. And yeah. He, and he says, well, I, you know, I, I, and he, but he's he's trying to be supportive of these trooper, troops. And he's like, well, I, I think they only know the one song, but I'll go see. There's something else, you know, as a, a Hollywood col- uh, connoisseur, they also demonstrate that not only is he doing these USO shows, he's a movie star too. He's making these movies, these World War II movies, yep. in which in the movies, he's performing the role that he would have, you know, the, the Captain America, the comic books would have done. Yep. And and in that way, to me, Steve Rogers, Captain America was kind of like John Wayne. Yeah. And, and when I say that, because look, a lot of the great actors of the 1940s, Jimmy Stewart, you know, many others, they they, they went to fight yep. and they, you know, they, they fought in World War II. John Wayne did not. And John Wayne spent most of the war making 
making war films okay. that were basically propaganda films. Sands of Iwo Jima, you can go right down the list. And um, so I almost, I come, you know, when I saw those scenes, because, you know, we kind of see Steve uh, in the theater and he's kind of, he's kind of embarrassed, you know, seeing himself on the screen in this action movie. Um, Steve Rogers is kind of, kind of, jo- he's John Wayne. Yeah. Now he wants to be more than that. He wants to be the guy that actually goes to the war, but he's relegated to being this kind of John Wayne. He's the symbol of the American soldier, but he's not an American soldier. Yeah. And, and, and confronted with the reality. I mean, he kind of, one of the other things when he's smiling about that show, he's kind of enjoying himself too. He's, he's happy to be doing something and, and he's different than he was, right? Yeah. He's not the guy who gets bullied anymore. You know, women aren't, don't feel sorry for him. You know, they don't right, they right. interact with him because he's, he's, uh, he's more uh, typically manly, I suppose, and not slight, but confronted with the fact that he isn't really doing what he wanted to do while being in the a war theater, a dangerous place, and, and seeing the people who are doing what's uh, what he wanted to do, it kind of puts him in a funk. And when we see him again, he's drawing a picture of a monkey on a unicycle, right? And mm. this is this is another little bit of fan service that you know it never gets really explored in the movie. But Steve Rogers was a very good artist in the comic books, but it's something that he kind of left behind and didn't do as much after becoming Captain Steve Rogers, right? right. But anyway, it's just a nice little moment because the art is very good in his journal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is when Peggy Carter pops in and she's like, oh, hey, Steve, talks to him. And she confronts him about, you know, you could be doing something more. You don't have to do this. You were meant for more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, no, no, she's very, she's very clear to him that you were meant for more than this. You're better than this. Well, yeah, because he thinks his only two choices are what the two people who is like, well, you know, the colonel thinks I should be a lab rat and this guy, you know, and here I am a performing monkey. And she's like, those are your only two choices. As a yeah, question. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that's an important bit of confrontation but then he finds out of course that she she says to you know don't be too hard on the soldiers they just lost a lot of their people and he finds out who he's been entertaining is the 107th yeah which is where his friend bucky is and he suddenly uh realizes that he's got to find out because you know they've been through hell is bucky okay yeah. and he and he immediately goes to uh colonel phillips and and demands to know yeah. you know you know this one name and um phillips is not glad to see him nope nope um, he he's critical of him, but he does he does he does respect his request. And he's like, I haven't I I, I don't know if Bucky's dead. I ha- I'm I think that he probably is dead. Is what he says to him. He says, uh, you know, I, I I've signed more of these today than I you know than I care to. But um, the name is familiar. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Which is yeah. the only nice. I mean, it's a genuine sentiment. Oh, absolutely. And but after he says it, he he's done. It's interesting when when Steve Rogers comes storming in. The first thing that Colonel Phillips says is to Peggy Carter and says, you and I are going to have a conversation later that you are not going to like. Yeah. And his interactions with Peggy Carter are priceless. Tommy Lee Jones and Peggy Carter. Uh, oh, totally. Yeah. They're great. But then Steve says, we got to go save these people. You know, what are, what are we doing? And he's like, what are your plans to save them? And and Phillips is like, well, we're going to win the war and then they'll give them back to us. Right. Right. Uh, Steve says, well, we, we got to save them now. And, and this is interesting because like, again, this is kind of justifying some of Phillips's reservations about Steve. And he's like, well, we'd lose more people saving them than 
and we would we would get back right right like anyway you would you would know this if you if you weren't a chorus girl and if i read the posters right you got a show in a half hour you got somewhere to be in a half hour yeah you got somewhere to be and and yes sir i do yes sir i do and he storms out and peggy carter realizes that they have not said the same things like uh, sorry uh, peggy carter realizes that steve is saying i'm gonna go figure out a way to save my friends it's really funny because she's about to say that to phillips and he says if you have anything to say right now would be a perfect time to keep your mouth closed And that's when she confronts Steve, and 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 he's gonna walk to Italy to save his friends, I guess. If if, if and then and then he challenges her. Yeah. After, you know, after she because he's like, you you know, you said that I was destined for more. Did you mean that? Yeah. Every word. And and then that's when and that's when she conscripts Howard Stark, best civilian pilot that she knows. Well, but see, this is where we discover, and actually, we kind of knew this. Yeah. But we discover that she believes in Steve more than she believes in anything else. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And so she's willing to do this to get Steve where he needs to go. Uh, They they concoct a plan. I'll I'll, I'll summarize this really quickly. Howard Stark is going to fly Steve into a place where he can parachute into near the area where he needs to save his friends, where they think the 107 survivors are holed up. And uh, they give him a a transmitter and say, hey, when you save the people, give us a click and we'll send some people to come get you so you guys don't have to walk back. They immediately start taking flack just about after this uh, moment. Um, And Steve jumps out uh, and parachutes into his first war zone right yeah. and this is a great scene this is a very it, it kind of reminded me of where eagles dare i think that's the name of the movie but the scene where he infiltrates schmidt's hydra base reminded me very much of uh raiders of the lost ark when harrison ford is sneaking around the submarine base yeah and he sneaks in and it's, it's all very well done and he he finds his his the 107th they're, they're being forced to do some kind of labor right i can't remember what it is right. earlier we see uh schmidt and uh zola talking about it Schmidt's just amazed by all of the production and how the cosmic cube is powering all of his inventions and Schmidt's like this is amazing increased production 300% and this is where we get some more of Zola's like recoiling he's like well the prisoners they'll they're already working very hard uh, you know they might die Schmidt's like that's fine there are always more prisoners you know yeah, uh-huh. and it, it's 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 a great scene we get to see more of Zola's reticence to really be he's not fully on board with right. with, with uh, Schmidt's vision but so Steve rescues the these 107th people there's some fun interactions this is the this is the howling commanders they never get called the howling commandos in the movie in the, comic, in, in the comic book steve rogers and nick fury worked with a group of people called the howling commandos dumb dumb well, and, and, and some other people and in fact uh uh nick fury there was a type there was an entire book dedicated to sergeant it was called sergeant fury and the howling commandos yes yeah, so we have to figure out how how fury went from enlisted to to uh, <laughs> a commissioned officer but but uh Anyway, uh, Nick Fury isn't in this movie. Uh, well, maybe uh, he's not in the World War. He's not in World War Two. So one of my favorite interactions is when Dum uh, Dum Dugan comes out of his cell and he bumps into a, a Japanese American. <laughs> He says, "We're taking anybody now," and uh, and uh, I can't remember. I'm from Fresno, he's like, "I'm from Fresno," and Dum uh, Dum's like, oh, "Okay, well, whatever." And I just thought that was a nice little throwaway moment. And uh, and then Steve goes to find Bucky. Anyway, I just think it's a great action scene, and we get one of the more horrific effects as they're all breaking out of Hydra, and that effect is the Hydra weapons. I was actually kind of shocked by these, by what these things did to people. So the Hydra characters have these cosmic cube in in, in 
imbued power, this cosmic cube imbued power. And when they, when somebody gets hit by their bolts, they are disintegrated. I thought every time I watch it, I think how horrific and abrupt these people are running and they're doing their thing. And then one minute they exist. And in the next moment, they are just not there, right? They're just gone. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I thought, imagine you're a soldier and you're running and one of your friends just disappears in a blue uh, light, but they don't disappear at once. They they kind of like, it's like little ashes, like red embers of ash kind of dissipating in the wind or like, it's or better yet, it's like if you were to light a piece of paper on fire and watch it disappear in your hand, right? Yeah. That's kind of what, but it happens much quicker. I just find the effect really horrific. Oh, I agree. More so than like blood, any other thing. I just think it's so abrupt and so horrific. I love it. I love it actually. I mean, I just think it's really effective filmmaking. Well, and and, and so so the scene where uh, where Johann Schmidt finally uses the, the Tesseract power to uh, sever his relationship with the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are Nazi officers that come in and they they suddenly discover that that Schmidt intends to win the war by bombing all of these capitals of all these countries, including Berlin. Berlin and- is on this. Berlin is on this map. Indeed, it is. Is what Schmidt says. And but the, just a subtle shit that 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 uh, that Hugo Weaving does, where he has these officers in the room and he's kind of explaining his plan, and then he kind of looks up and he counts the number of officers because he's he's already operating the device yeah. to eradicate them from existence while he's still talking to them. Yeah. And and that's where I look. If, if Hugo Weaving's performance in this movie was was as a villain in the James Bond uh, franchise, mm-hmm. which is 24, now 25 films. He would be in the top two villains oh, yeah, yeah. ever because these little things that he does that are just so horrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But, but yet charming. Well, he, that, that is a strange thing. He has a certain charm to him, but that that scene is great. Uh, I don't want to say too much more about it because if viewers haven't seen it, which I'm sure they have, but but that's a nice surprise. But Steve saves everybody. They go back to the camp, and this is when. Uh, well, first he saves Bucky. So he saves Bucky, yeah. and while he see while he's saving Bucky, he sees a, a map on the wall, and this is how he figures out where all the Hydra bases are. It's interesting too that when he's a uh, is this the is this his first face off with Schmidt in this in this as he's a oh yes yeah yeah. 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 But interesting as Schmidt sees, he's watching the kind of closed circuit TV of his base, the security cameras on his base, and he sees this person just tearing through his people. And he knows that Erskine has created another one of his people, an- another super soldier, I'm sorry. And he starts flipping the self-destruct de- sequences. And Zola's like, no, stop, stop, stop. What are you doing? Schmidt's like, ah, it's over. Look, our people are overmatched. Yes, he knows instantly that... Um... Because because he knows Erskine's formula, he knows um, this is what he's been afraid of. This yeah. is why he wanted Erskine killed. Absolutely. And now Schmidt's not a coward, but it's not the moment where he wants to try and fight Steve Rogers. Right. You know, I mean, he might win. He doesn't know, but he has to complete his his work. And so he and uh, Zola, he says, "Go get our records. Don't leave anything else." And and so they're gonna leave and escape. That's when they kind of they have a little face off. He and Steve Rogers have their first face off, 
right? It's a great little moment where Schmidt is trying to convince Steve that he's being a fool to work with these people. You and I are beyond them, Steve. Yeah. I embrace it, you know? Yeah. We're not mortal men anymore. So what are you, what are you, he's trying uh, to- He's almost, he's, he's describing their relationship in the same way he described his relationship with the villager in the very first scene. Yeah. You and I are very much alike, but the difference is I'm going to take the Tesseract and use it, whereas you're just going to hide it. Yeah. So um, you see, it's the same, it's the same oh, theme. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, he and Steve kind of get a little measure of each other because he punches Steve's uh, shield and there's a big dent in it, you know, and uh, and then Steve hits, uh, they exchange blows and it, there's about to be a duel between them and Zola just, Zola steps in because he's, uh, if there's, he may be ideologically committed, but we don't know to what he is ideologically committed to but he is committed to survival and he right. grabs the he grabs their the steven and schmidt are fighting on a on a extendable walkway and schmidt hits the button i'm not schmidt but zola hits the button to pull the to separate them right, right. and that's when we get some more great hugo weaving acting or i can't remember exactly what he says oh no but but well but but um yeah i mean i can't remember what he says but you know steve does point out and why are you running uh, uh, yeah yeah because i am brave i embrace it i'm not i'm not scared of it and then that's when that's when steve says that schmidt doesn't answer him i don't know if you noticed that i did notice that yeah. and uh and they leave uh schmidt and zola leave and they go to this little helipod and this is kind of a cute moment too where it's clearly only room for one person in this yeah. escape device and Z uh, zola's like uh where am i gonna go and schmidt has hands holds the keys up to his favorite car and he's like not a scratch doctor not a scratch and he goes off to his little helicopter jet thing and and which is a really great design of like 1940s sci-fi yeah and then schmidt of course i'm sorry zola runs off and ends up in this really wonderful looking bond car i think that's a good way to describe it yeah, yeah. Um, which is, looks like some kind of like a mutated rolls royce yeah with with like a kind of a jet edition yeah it's got a hydra emblem on it but anyway it's got it's, it's another cool another I, another perfect piece of design i think in the film uh, and then yeah. even and cap escape i'm sorry bucky and cap escape then we cut we, well we don't know if they escape they're leaping and trying to get away from the building that's blowing up because of the self-destruct uh, sequence that has reached its uh, zenith and is destructing. And then we cut back to the World War, the, the the Ally camp encampment, and yeah. Phillips is laying into Peggy Carter because all the, because all these people are dead now, and and Steve's dead, and he's like, you know, this is your fault. Phillips wants to take it out on somebody. He can't take it out on Stark, Howard Stark, because he's a civilian and he spends a lot right. of he gives a lot of military gear to the to the U.S. military. And, but he can do something about Peggy Carter, you know? Yeah. I don't know if he's actually going to do anything because he never, he doesn't ever fire her in that moment because the next thing I was expecting him to do was be like, you're fired, right? Or you're out right. of here, you're dismissed and go back to Britannia. But he doesn't do that. So I don't know if he was actually going to do that or if he was just venting. But then, of course, Steve and all the soldiers come back. Which, which is a really great moment when they it all is, come go ahead, walking go ahead. in. Yeah, so they all come marching in and then this is where Alan Silvestri's score kind of kicks in and... Uh, it's a really rousing moment. Mm -hmm. And of course, Steve, you know, ever the, you know, honest as the day is long kind of guy, uh, immediately uh, surrenders himself for immediate discipline. Yeah. And Phillips, that uh, won't be necessary. <laughs> yeah. And so begins a, a new partnership. The science yeah. division, the, the, the strategic science division is back on track. And uh, and uh, and now Steve Rogers is officially Captain America, not just as an actor, yeah. but as a, in a film or on a stage, but actually uh, as a participant in the war. Yes. And then we get kind of a montage of strategizing and, and the 
Steve and the Howling Commandos doing amazing stuff. Before that, we get the design of, uh, well, no, I'm sorry, I'm not sure when he gets the new shield. One of the things that happens uh, just before the SSD gets cracking, Steve forms the Howling Commandos. Bucky gets to see what it's like to be insignificant because, yeah. because at the bar where Steve's recruiting all of his Howling Commandos, all played by really great character actors. Um, no, and, and, and actually, I I want to kind of dwell on that for a second because um, um, Haley Atwell, um, Peggy Carter walks in and she comes up to talk to Steve and Bucky asks her to dance and, and she she turns him down. That She says she wants to dance and Bucky says, well, you know, what are you waiting for? And she just stares at Steve and says, the right partner. Which is a callback to the, the lines they had in the car. when he, Absolutely. He, but yeah. this scene is magnificent because we kind of feel like Bucky. We kind of feel like that, you know, uh, this doesn't involve us because yeah. she is so she is so focused on him that that um, it, it's kind of a riveting moment. Uh, may, uh, uh, totally played by Haley Atwell because all all Chris Evans needs to do is just kind of stand there. Yeah. And then it's only afterward that what you're referring to where uh, Bucky's like, well, I'm, I'm invisible. How, how did this happen? Yeah, and, and they kind of have a, a good natured uh, uh, ribbing about that. But it's a great scene. And then now Steve doesn't isn't quite sure about Haley Atwell completely or Peggy Carter because he does think that there's something going on between she and Howard Stark because they fondue right. occasionally. Yeah. So no, he doesn't know what fondue means. He doesn't know what fondue means. And so while he's uh, waiting for Howard Stark and Peggy and some people to come up with some designs for Captain America and gear and more logistic stuff, he gets accosted by a, a fan, a military woman who puts the moves on Steve and he kisses her and Peggy Carter catches him in that moment. And uh, she tries to play it off, you know, and she's like, well, I see you're becoming like other soldiers. It's like all the other soldiers. Oh, oh she's pissed. She's pissed. She's very pissed. And Steve tries to, it wasn't what it seemed like, you know, know and she go oh, no it's fine whatever and uh and i can't remember what happened after that but i know the next scene i'm remembering is when he's talking to howard stark and stark's just like hey don't worry about it man you know you, the, the moment you start trying to understand women you you you've already lost or something like that right i can't remember what he says very 1940s thing to say very howard stark thing to say i think but stark wants to wants him to see he says well i hear you really like the shield so the shield thing so i've come up with some designs and that's when he discovers the 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 shield the round shield it's all silver and they said what's this and we get the iconic the first moment where he holds the iconic shield when I was watching this in the film I was like what are they going to say it's made of I didn't know what they were going to say and uh, now in the comic book it's an alloy of vibranium and adamantium but in the comic book uh, the shield is made of uh, alloy of vibranium and adamantium I believe yes yes in this they just say vibranium which I when I saw it in the film I was like oh it's a reference to Wakanda you know Uh, Um, but Star thinks that it's the only it's just it's the rarest metal on the planet um, and this is all they have and so we get to see in the next moment how angry Peggy Carter actually is because she he's like hey look Peggy check this out and she picks up a I think it's a 45 uh, and just shoots three rounds right at him and he ducks behind the shield and it and that we see the the shells fall at his feet and she's like oh well works (laughs) Um, and he and Stark look at each other as she storms off and that's when Steve gives him some ideas about the costume right Howard is 
almost frightened for him. Yes, yes. And he's like, whatever you want, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, so the next time we see him, he's in the new suit. He's got the shield and everything is like he and the Howling Commandos are in a montage of uh, of action. But the new design for the costume is brilliant. Yeah. It's like somebody in 1941 might have built. It looks like basically it's very similar to the in color scheme to the costume he was wearing on his uh, war bond tour and his USO tour. But it looks like it's made of more, there's more leather. It, it looks much more functional. When I saw it, I thought, wow, they managed to make that idea of the walking flag work. Yeah. It's so effective. It looks yeah. so good. It, it just looks like something that might have spilled out of World War II, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I just, I, I, I continue to marvel at how good that, at how good all the costumes are in the film. Yeah. Uh, the, and so we get the montage. They're pulling little Hydra bases off of this giant map that they have, you know, because Cap and, and the Howling Commandos are taking them out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we see Schmidt getting more and more frustrated. <laughs> right. And, uh, there's a, this, this culminates, the Schmidt side of it culminates in a great scene where he's just, he's come to one of his bases and it's waste. It's a wasteland. And this guy stumbles up, sir, we fought to the last man. And Schmidt If it didn't, didn't. <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead. Evidently not. <laughs> yes, he, he, he helps that come true. It's a great scene. And uh, now Schmidt's not wearing the, the the mask anymore. He took off the 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 the, the skin mask that he would wear. He was wearing yeah. in front of Cap, in fact. Oh, and which, by the way, they did that uh, for a dramatic reason. They felt that the viewers needed to establish the fact that this was Hugo Weaving. Yeah. Yes. They want. They wanted in the early scenes for us to. To see his face so we can make that connection so that when we move to the makeup it, it wouldn't be jarring and i think that really helped because oh. because because doing the red skull was actually something i was as afraid of yeah as doing captain america and making it work i think that helped make it work oh it does the makeup the makeup works very well it's great and um but one of the reasons that that, that it does is because they allow hugo weaving to establish the character as just an actor before they move to the makeup. Well, and they never explain why that is the case, but I suspect the brass uh, in the Nazi army didn't know what he was. Right. It certainly, the Red Skull certainly violates the the ideas of the Nazi regime. Ah, well, that's a very good point, you know, in terms of perfection and so forth. But there's another piece too, in What's terms that? of his character. The Red Skull thinks that he's not afraid. Mm-hmm. As far as the Red Skull goes, is that Steve said to him, you know, he says, well, I am, I embrace it. I'm not afraid. And then Steve said, well, why are you running? So actually um, the Red Skull has an illusion about himself that he's, he's this superior creature, but really when he knows the odds are against him, he will run. That's true. That's true. And Steve, Steve can do this all day. He won't run because. Yeah. And yeah. And, and and so to me, that's why that he's wearing the, the kind of uh, fake skin over the Red Skull. In addition to what you said about, you know, him being a violation of, you know, Aryan perfection yeah. or whatever, but also he's also kind of afraid. Uh, that, because, uh, that wasn't true. Yeah. Because, well, because until he has the Tesseract, until he has that ability to turn against Hitler, he's kind of afraid of him. Well, he's, 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 he's under the thumb of like, he does, I mean, he is a small division of, of, of Hitler's forces. And you're right. It's not until he gets the Tesseract where, where Hydra is a force unto itself. It, 
and and then suddenly, you know, he's like, you know, uh, well, we couldn't grow any anymore under Hitler's. But actually, he now has the power that he actually can do what he's always wanted to do, and that's get away from Hitler and even overcome Hitler yeah, yeah. and become uh, an entire kind of new element in, oh, yeah. in, in the global uh, scheme of things. Well, I mean, he corrects he corrects Zola in in that scene in that scene back early in the film. He's like, well, this will change the course of the war, and Hitler's like, I'm not Hitler. Schmidt's like it'll change the world oh yeah yeah and uh and so then we cut back to uh i think it's uh the next so from from there from evidently not we go to the the a fateful mission where they're going to try and catch zola right on the bullet train on the bullet train this hydra they got they got they got they got skills jason don't don't fault them for having a bullet train and uh, a very bondish moment where they're going to get on the train and uh dum dum dugan has some funny lines but they're going to zip line down to uh uh, to this train that's zipping by him. It's a kind of a harrowing scene. Um, good effects. Bucky, Cap, and uh, the guy who speaks French, who's an actor I don't, I don't, whose name I don't remember, either the actor or the character. Maybe I'll cut it in. But they zip line down to the train, and Steve and Bucky go in. The other guys back up. Very quickly, something happens. Steve and, Steve and Bucky get separated on the train. They're going into the forward cars to get Zola, and the door shuts, and they're separated. Now, when this happened, I I thought Bucky shut the door at first when I first saw it it looks like okay. it looks like Bucky shuts the door and one of the things that fans of the comic book were looking for is signs that something is wrong with Bucky when Bucky's rescued he's being experimented on right. and do we want to talk about Bucky too much in this comp in this episode about Cap you know maybe not because um what's really interesting about this film is that if you're not a Captain America fan there's no evidence that no. they're going to bring Bucky back no. at any point yeah no. and and I think that it's a deliberate bait and switch too because it looks like Bucky shuts the door between them but then that that interpretation doesn't hold up I don't think because Bucky finds himself in a life or death struggle with a couple of hydra right. and Cap finds himself in a life or death struggle with a couple of agents and in a in a scene that's actually going to be called back later on in the Captain America films Cap gets knocked down loses his shield and Bucky picks it up and tries to take out this uh, Hydra agent with a one of the big blue disintegrator cannons right right and Bucky isn't Cap though and when he no. blocks the blast I mean he saves Cap but he gets blown out the side of the the train it creates a big uh, hole in the train and he gets blown out the side of the train Cap very quickly dispatches the guy once he gets his, his uh, shield back and in a really cool scene by the way and then he goes yeah. to try and res rescue Bucky and everything is going for I think for audiences who don't know anything about Cap everything is going fine with their expectations they probably think Cap's going to save Bucky yeah. and he doesn't Bucky falls to his death right yeah. what a great scene I I mean I knew it was coming right. I knew we were going to lose Bucky somewhere in this movie right Yeah. I thought it was going to come in the last act I, I when I first saw it I thought they were going to recreate the um, the story from the comic. So in the, I, in the comic book, I think Jason's talked about this a little bit. He and Bucky are on a on a bomb that's going to hit New York or Washington D.C. and they're trying to disarm it. Something happens that dislodges him and he falls into the ocean. He's telling Bucky to let go, get off. You're going to get killed. And Bucky decides he's going to stay on and try and disarm the bomb. Or I think in 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 our age, in the Silver Age of comics, Bucky gets caught on the bomb and something is he's somehow he's stuck on it but it blows up and that's the last cap ever sees of him before being being frozen yeah i thought they were going to do that too and when I, I i was never bothered by the choices they made to separate those events correct yeah i um, agree that never that never 
bugged me. I thought it was an interesting choice. But they do catch Aram Zola, and that leads us to uh, one of the great scenes in the movie when Tommy Lee Jones comes in to talk to Aram Zola in the in his my, cell. My favorite acting uh, scene in the movie. Oh, it's great. And uh, he brings Zola a little tray of food. Oh, steak. Cow! Cow, yeah. And I do not eat meat. And when, he, when Zola says, I do not eat meat, Tommy Lee Jones just turns the tray around and starts eating the food himself. And he's <laughs> And he says, you know how hard it is to get steak out here in the front? He says, here's a, here's what I'm going to release. Uh, uh, I just sent this message. And in the message, it's uh, it's all about how Zola is going to cooperate with them and tell them everything that they know about Hydra. And he's like, yeah, I just sent it out on our channel. I hope you guys haven't cracked those codes yet. That'll be awkward. And he's basically putting... <laughs> He's basically putting a... Because he, he's recognized something. Colonel Phillips has recognized something about Zola that I thought was really cool and it's really well spelled out in the scene. He's like, every time we catch one of you Hydra guys, they pop a little tooth out and they take a little cyanide capsule. You didn't do that. You want to survive. And I and basically what, what, what Colonel Phillips has done is he's made it impossible for Zola to survive without the protection of the U.S. military. Yes. It's like, a, so you got to tell us what I want to know. And look, since you just got Captain America's best friend killed, I don't expect I wouldn't expect the best protection. So you give us you. It's either you or Schmidt. That's just the hand you've been dealt, which is a great moment. I mean, it's oh, just crazy. yeah. And then I love how how later he refers to him as his new best friend. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, and then Schmidt. Uh, so so then Zola just rolls right away. Yep. I mean, Phillips is right, and he's like, "Look, what Schmidt wants to do is take over the world. He's going to use these uh, these things to. He's going to use the Tesseract to do it. And uh, and what's really neat about this is that Phillips doesn't get it right away. Uh-huh. He's like, "Well, that's kind of crazy. That plan, the sanity of the plan, is of no consequence. You can do it. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And I mean, that's that's why does he want to do it? Because he can. Yeah. And uh, and that's when they uh, they they come up with a good plan to. To stop Smith, and they're going to attack the final Hydra base. Um, well, they, they don't. Cap does. Cap does, and they're trying to figure out how to get in because it's just so well fortified, right? Yeah. And where are you going to go? What are we going to do? Go through the front door? Yeah. Exactly. What we're going to do. Yeah. And, uh, and and then and that gives us the 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 final act action sequence, which is great. Steve uh, rides in on a Harley and a uh, like a, a in a bunch of great action scenes where he's dodging the bad guys. Uh, some of it is very very much in. Inspired by the action sequences of Raider, I'm sorry, last uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yes, they're they're they they don't ape those scenes. You'll just recognize that they are of an intellectual piece. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're all very good. You won't you won't think that there comes a point where copying and homaging becomes too much. But Joe Johnston never crosses that line here. No, never. Yeah, um, and uh, Steve gets in, gets caught, I believe, purposely. Yeah, and gets taken to Schmidt. Yeah, but all the while his people are using this distraction to to get in but this is another great scene where um Edigans is not uh, unique among americans but i have to say captain you do it better than most is what schmidt says to captain america which is just a great he really does kind of admire steve's boldness but he, he also doesn't get him no i mean i mean because because he says it's arrogance yeah but you know finally you know he finally lets his hand show that actually he's he, he's angry that Erskine, that he was not good enough. Yes. You know, 
why are you the one? You know, what's so special about you? Yeah. Nothing. I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. And, and that that infuriates him. It's yeah. true. While he would love to talk more with Steve about things, he's got he's got he's got places to go and he's gonna go ahead and kill Steve. And uh and that's when Steve's plan really kicks into high gear. The Howling Commandos get everything going. Um Peggy and Colonel Phillips is even there. He's he, they're all attacking, and this is this is the big show. This is the big push for the science division. And you're right, I think you're right about Red Skull, because he doesn't stay in fight. Yeah. This is the moment because there's no other places for him to go with Hydra right now. Right? This is his right. base. But you know, he is gonna try and do his thing. He's got like this giant flying wing full of little bomb bomb lit planes. It's a it's a right. glorious design, his flying wing, by the way. Yeah. I mean, it looks like a stealth bomber, but it's gotta be, you know, ten times bigger. And uh Steve has a nice little moment with Peggy. She saves him from a flamethrower. Uh anyway, it's all great. All the action sequences are great. And but what it ends up being is Steve getting on this. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. I got to back up a little bit. Steve gets onto the flying wing. It's about to get away, but he can't catch it when behind him, Peggy Carter and Colonel Phillips in the Rolls Royce from hell pick up Steve and they race towards, they're going to get Steve on this plane. He's the last guy who can, he's the only guy who can stop the Red Skull because uh, the Red Skull has dispatched everybody who's tried to stop him from getting there. But, right. but there's a great moment where Steve's about to, he's prepping himself to jump and Peggy says, wait a minute, Steve. And they kiss. And it's a nice little moment. And then he looks he says, at, well, she says, go get him. Go get him. And he looks at uh, Colonel Phillips and with the greatest line, I'm not going to kiss you. <laughs> and, uh, and they get him close enough to the plane and he jumps off onto it. And then, then we're into the final, the final moments of the film. Steve and, and Schmidt have a, a awesome little fight uh, in this plane. Uh, after Steve dispatches all of the people who are going to destroy the Eastern seaboard and Berlin and all the, <clears throat> all the things they're going to destroy in the fight, uh, Schmidt gets knocked into the engine of the wing, which is powered by the cosmic cube. Boom! What have you done? And uh, he picks up the cosmic cube up to now. He's only picked it up with tongs. Yeah. And he picks it up, and we have our last little Indiana Jones moment, uh, <laughs> where where the Red Skull is destroyed, basically by. Well, we don't really know what happens to him. It seems like he's destroyed, but it also yeah. seems like there's elements of the Bifrost happening. Yeah. Anyway, he gets destroyed, and he drops the cube, and it goes, it eats through the plane and falls into wherever it falls. Um, and then Steve's got to do something with this plane. It's a big bomb, basically, because all those bombs are still on it. Right, and and it's. On autopilot it's on autopilot and he's he hops on the radio and he's like okay anybody there anybody there and peggy and the colonel one of the howling commandos is in the room and she's like uh peggy answers the phone uh, the the radio and and this is one of the most touching scenes in the movie and it's a touching scene and one of the most touching scenes in the in the uh all of the mcu films when he's like oh the plane's pretty badly damaged i'm gonna have to put it down and in that moment we see peggy the colonel and that commando and the colonel says he just points out and he leaves Peggy alone. I mean, he's going to hang out in the wi- in the wings, but he knows he already he already understands what Steve just said. Peggy hasn't understood it yet. And she's kind of in denial. She's in denial, but the but the colonel understood. And it, it was a nice moment for Tommy Lee Jones, who's been kind of gruff around Steve, you know. Yeah. And gruff with Peggy, right? Yeah. But we see, I think we see in that moment that he's really a good good guy. Yeah. And because uh, he stays in the room just in case, I mean, he just leaves them enough that he can hear what's going on. But I get the sense that he's hanging there just in case he needs to 
come back if Peggy can't do what she needs to do. But anyway, Steve realizes he's going to have to put the plane down and there's no way to do it easily. It's, 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 it's the plane is kind of messed up and he can't let, he can't let this plane kill everybody in the, in the US or how, he doesn't know how much damage it's going to do, but, but they have a nice touching moment. Anything you want to add to this scene? Um, I, I no, I agree with you. It, it's, it's a very touching scene because really, except for the kiss and the Rolls Royce, Steve and Peggy never really had really any moment to speak of. It, it's, 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 they, they were, they were kicking off what would have been, I think, a great relationship. Yeah. And, and the only thing, the only way they're able to kind of celebrate that fact is to talk about the things that they kind of alluded to that they would do, like, uh, because he's, you know, he's just not a dance. Yeah. And, uh, and she's like, well, that's okay. I'll teach you. And he's like, well, um, and they, they, they pick, pick a, a day. day and, pick a day. Yeah. And uh, a, a day and a time and a place. And he's like, we'll have the band play something slow. And, you know, right up to the end, she's, uh, you know, don't you dare be late. You know, and, and one of the things that I think makes the scene really poignant is he's he's mid he's mid sentence when it cuts off. Yeah, and then yeah, uh, it, 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 it's really it's it's so well done because um, because it, it's a heroic act. They both know that he has to do it. They both are absolutely ripped to shreds yeah. that they've gone as far as they're going to be able to, and they didn't expect it. Yeah, you know, this was not something that they were able to prepare for. This was not something that. It's like, well, you know, th this is going to be it. Yeah. You almost get the sense that when she kissed him and said, go get him, she was like, you, you, I mean, in her mind, you're going to go kick his ass. And this is well, good. Was... And then after afterwards, we're going to have this great experience together. And it, and it didn't happen. Well, and, and there was no reason to not have that expectation because up to this point, they've won. Yeah. After, you know, after the rescue of the 107th and the, the, mi the minor setback, I mean, strategically, of Bucky, right? Yeah. They've won. And handily actually they got yeah. in handily they were tearing through the hydra forces they had they had done it this would be what happens here is like luke not making it after you know dropping the the, the bomb down the tube right yeah, uh, yeah. but it's kind of it's just touching she's crying a bit, trying to be very uh strong about it stiff upper lip she's british after all and then it yeah. cuts to then, then the scene kind of cuts to tommy lee jones where he was standing and you just see the kind of the deep sadness in his face and then he kind of leaves her to her grief you know yeah. um not me you know it's just he knows that she needs a moment to compose herself i think and then that's that's that isn't it no he wait then the next scene is the next scene him steve rogers waking up no the next scene uh we see um uh, we see the allied victory we see actually uh, uh for the first time that occurred to me that star wars the last jedi uh -huh. borrowed a bit from this film because we do see kids with trash can lids right. painted like captain america like there's kind of this sense that you know children are are going to remember Captain yeah, yeah, from generation to generation, you know, kids are going to remember uh, Captain America, and he's going to be the hero for, you know, for a long time. And this is all done in montage. It's all done very, very, very well. And then there's a mo and then there's one last scene where, um, oh, uh, right, right. Uh, right, where um, they close Steve Rogers' file. Uh, the colonel kind of gives it to Peggy Carter. He, he shows her the file. The file is now going to be closed. And he looks at her with this look 
look of compassion, yep. which is about all you're going to get from him. Yep. But but he definitely the look that he gives her is I'm sorry. Oh yeah yeah. And and um and and that kind of closes the door on both their characters for this film. Yeah. Because then we cut to my um Steve waking up. Yep. yep. In a hospital room. And there's a baseball game playing. A baseball game playing, and um, uh, a nurse comes in uh, wearing the uh, scientific division, yep, you yep. know, re- regalia. Yep. And uh, but Steve figures out very quickly that the baseball game on the radio is the New York Yankees and the Brooklyn Dodgers from 1941. Yeah. And he was there. Yeah. So it's a game from the past, and of course, as far as I know, baseball games would not have been rebroadcast. Yeah. Like that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he knew instantly that something this was, was something was wrong. This was phony. Yeah. And this this kind of leads, I think this is a really nice so this comes after some of the credits I think have rolled. Typical uh Marvel after scene, after credit scene, mid-credit scene, I can't remember exactly, but this sort of leads into the kind of films that the next the kind of film the next Captain America is gonna be, which is a spy film. It kind of gives that yeah. feel of things aren't what they seem. I just thought there was a nice little touch, it's not overdone, but uh he's like where am i really to her yeah yeah and she's like i don't know what you mean he's clearly getting agitated so she kind of calls for a little backup and oh because they're afraid of him <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah he dispatches them pretty easily and uh he doesn't hurt the nurse lady but then he escapes very he very quickly he's at the building runs out the door and stops running because this is not the new york he ever knew right and he gets surrounded very quickly by several bl- black uh trucks a very familiar face steps out nick Fury, yep. Samuel L. Jackson, um, apologizes. I'm sorry about that. We thought it would be better to break it to you slowly. How long have I been out? About 70 years. Now you're gonna be all right. Well, yeah, but and then then he said he he, he just says I had a date. I had a date. Now I want to say something. That's a great moment, and it's a really powerful scene. And we haven't even like completely digested what this means for Cap yet. We'll see a little bit more about that in the in the next film, Winter Soldier. But in the comic book, Cap went in the ground. So let's say 1940. Not in the ground, but he went into the ocean and into suspended animation in 1945. He's out in 64. That's just 15 years or so, right? Right, right, right. Not too bad. He's going to know a lot of the a lot of the people that he knew. Nick Fury is still alive, you know. A lot of people. Fury fought in World War II as well in the comic book. This is so much worse, and it's so much more dramatic. I think, right? Because he's been everybody he knows is dead, almost certainly, right? Um, Or or very, very old. Or very, very old. and I just thought this is so much more a man out of time story than even the original. Now, for you and I, I think I always assumed that you know I was I always was moving the date of when Cap came out of the ice, right? As a reader, yeah, it was always progressively getting worse for him in my mind, right? But right. but in this, it's 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 really crazy because I just was thinking, you know, gosh, what if you you know you went to bed uh, and you know they were you know it was the Andrews sisters and and Bing Crosby, right? And never got more risque than Betty Page maybe you know or uh, but he woke up to New York in 2011 I, I just think that, I just think that that's a, a, a nice little bit of drama right yeah um well and 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 Fury was very wise yeah I um because yeah I mean it was definitely a shock to the system for the captain it was it was all right anything else you think we need to cover well I mean I 
I like the ending credits. Yep. I like how they they revisited the Captain America song from the uh, yes. from the USO. Okay, and then there there is an after credits scene that is a kind of a mini trailer for the Avengers, which yes. actually is the next MCU. I like the credits too because it sort of pulled together all of the uh, kind of it put a nice little capstone, I guess, or an end cap rather on the '40s art direction, both in the music and yeah. in the uh, in the early parts of the credits when they show the, uh, the cast and, and they have kind of the still pictures yeah and it's almost like too they use some of those old propaganda posters and kind of created motion with them and it's really effective it's really effective this has moved into one of my so i gave you my early when we when we started talking my my initial reaction was that was pretty good now after seeing it this is one of the marvel movies that i watch a lot more than i used to uh oh, and, and um, it only increases in my estimation every time i mean we're yeah i agree with that and if you're ready for the verdict let's do it yeah captain america is a movie that is certainly crucial to the mcu universe it's a delightful science fiction action movie i think you can enjoy it whether you're a superhero fan or not i mean this is a world war ii it's kind of a science fiction World War II movie and you can appreciate it just as that, even if you're not a superhero fan. But I think if you give it a chance, it's a film that's going to grow on you more and more every time you watch it. Uh, you'll see new things, but there's not a bad actor in the film. It is a splendidly put together film at every level. I don't know. It's just one of my favorite films now. I don't know. I just love it. That's all I got. Um, I, I, I think that I'll probably be gushing in the same uh, in the same manner. I, I also, when I first saw this, I thought that it was perfectly adequate. And every time that I watch it, it has gone up and up and up. And uh, as as Max said earlier in the podcast, we're both big fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. All the films um, have done very well. This film has worked its way up, though, for me. You know, before watching it this time, I would have said that it probably had gotten into my top five. Now maybe I'm thinking top three. Yeah. This movie, this movie, this is a great movie. And I would echo what you just said, Max, that um, in terms terms of film score in terms of special effects in certainly in terms of the cast uh the script the action scenes the drama the the moments of of levity and comedy this film does nothing wrong and i would actually if i would if i would make a a daring dramatic dramatic statement daring dramatic statement daring dramatic statement this is the best ensemble cast Ooh. of of any mcu film that might be true uh, i'll have to think about that i I'm ready. I think I'm ready to say to crown Hugo Weaving as my favorite villain. Okay. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones, one of my favorite performances of any actor in any MCU film. But then I think of Stanley Tucci. I think of I think of Chris Evans. I think yeah. of Haley Atwell. There's so many great performances in this movie that I almost can't choose among them. No, and no. they they all work together very well. Nobody seems to be trying to outdo one another. They 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 all seem to have found the perfect pitch for their character. That will continue to be true for all of the Captain America films, I think. I, I agree, but you know, if if this is not my number one, yeah. uh, I I um I, I I'm almost prepared to rank the MCU films, and, and I and this is not my number one yet. But if someone told me it was their number one, I wouldn't argue with them. No, no. Um, this is a great this is a great movie, and I know that you and I are not alone. Yeah. 
I've heard other people, you know, podcasts or YouTube videos or whatever, people who have said this film has grown on them. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that uh, I, I would echo that. And I would say to anybody, whether a Marvel fan or a comic book fan or not a comic book fan or not even a fan of action films, this is a really, this is a rousing adventure film with great acting, with a great story, and is just top-notch entertainment for anybody. This is this is a great movie. I agree. And I think I'm actually going to be willing to say that I think, I, I've been on the fence, and I, I don't think it's a bad argument, but Schmidt, a.k.a. the Red Skull, I think is the, the best villain in the MCU. By this I mean, I really do mean villain. Yeah, I know what you mean. Loki isn't a pure villain. Right. Hela isn't He's, a pure villain. Those are better characters. Yes, yes. But best pure villain, I think it might have to be Red Skull. No, that's yeah. That's because that's that's given us a new angle, uh, a, a new way to parse all of these conversations about about the performances. Oh, I like this, Jason. I like I like what you've done here. All right, uh, what are we doing next? Uh, I believe we had had a discussion about traveling back into the decade of the eighties. The eighties to, re- to revisit Predator. I, I like this idea. I and I agree with I already agreed to it, so I guess that's fine. So folks, watch the Predator, watch Captain America. And it's good that we're watching the Predator so that people can see where Hugo Weaving got his accent uh for for Red Skull. All right, so share us on social media, share us on Facebook, Twitter, give us a five-star review at, at uh, Apple Podcasts, subscribe to us, email us, share us, just share us promiscuously. Uh anything you want to add, Jason? Anything you think that people need to know? anything uh, uh, you're watching or think that people need to do in between now and the next podcast? No, I I, I don't. Uh, watch the Predator. It's, watch it's the Predator. Uh, predator. It's not the Predator. It's Predator. Listeners, yeah. listen to that uh, podcast and we will uh, see you guys next week. Bye-bye. That's all I got. I think that you nailed it.